Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Turkey hunt's one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt. When I'm hunting turkeys, it is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. Montana Casting Company is a performance fly rod and reel company based right here in our capital, Helena, Montana. Each model of fly rod is a tribute to Montana's rugged beauty and adventurous spirit. Their rods capture the look, feel, and craftsmanship of a custom-built fly rod. Scott personally calls every customer buys one of his rods head to montanacastingco.com and use code meateater20 at checkout for a one-time 20% off discount this is the meat eater podcast coming at you shirtless severely bug bitten and in my case underwearless we hunt the meat eater podcast you can't predict anything. Um, I got a bone to pick first off. Cause you, uh, you guys remember when we were talking about the guy that, um, the guy that had the bluefin tuna. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And he, uh, Refresh my memory. Oh, this is the guy that that caught it okay. illegally, buried uh, it in the woods, drug, drug it into the woods. Down <laughs> I'm doing some. I'm doing some horrible hosting. So we got a couple of corrections about the bluefin tuna that are interesting. One clarification and one correction. Where you guys misled me and mis and really misled listeners by not knowing uh, not knowing something. The story is how the 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 the, the catch season on bluefin tuna had been closed. Uh, on the East Coast, and a guy caught a 500, 400, there's different weights going around, a 400-pound bluefin tuna. He thought, maybe I can hide this giant fish, and no one will know I actually boated it, because he, he could legally release it, right? Like, you could target it for clients, but you just can't keep them, but he decides to keep the thing because they're real valuable. He thinks he's going to go and take it and sell it in a backdoor restaurant exchange, which I guess happens quite a bit. Um, he doesn't do it. One of the restaurants reports him for trying to sell this tuna, he panics, ties it to his truck, and drags it out into the woods and then gets all these crazy fines. And in talking about this, we're talking about what is the value of a bluefin tuna. And you boys, can't remember which you was most guilty. <laughs> you two were involved in it, and Miles Nolte, who's not here right now, was involved in it. And we're talking about how some tuna are worth millions of dollars. Correct. Yeah, we looked yep. it up on the internet. Yeah, but he, yeah. Internet doesn't guy it has in, to be true. Okay, no. Oh, but a guy is going to now correct us. Okay, you check this out then. Check this out. <sighs> I will. What he's saying 
He says, in reference to the story of the poached and discarded bluefin tuna, you misstated the value of bluefin tuna in the Japanese fish auctions as one or three million dollars. And you even mentioned it was the first of the year, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, there's a, there's a sort of ceremonial thing with the first tuna. They take a nice tuna and sell the first tuna of the year at auction. And it's like a dick swinging contest where whoever is kind of sitting on the fattest wallet and is, has the best business going will do a symbolic purchase of the first tuna okay. as a sort of media driver. But the same fish, if it was the second tuna, would be 80 grand. It's yeah. a thing you do to be like, it's, a, it's like the opening of the sale. It's like the Texas State Fair with the Grand Champion Steer and all the oil companies. Tell me more. I don't know this, but I like, I like the sounds of it. <laughs> so this, you have this is the voice your, of Seth Bergsley, our guest. <laughs> all your rural, your rural areas, they have you know, your 4-H or your state fairs, and so all these kids usually show these animals. And then when you get to the end, they have the grand champion. You know, This is the, the premium steer. Well, you go to a state like Texas, where obviously there's a lot of oil money. And it happened a lot over like North Dakota. Some of those guys are paying you know, thousands of dollars, which to those kids is a ton of money. But... I think it's the same thing. These steers go for, you know, one, two, three hundred thousand dollars for a beef because it's the same thing. It's like, oh, oh it's, it's the grand champion, you know. Really? You gotta have it. So Yeah. That does not so you guys, make it untrue. <laughs> yeah, yes, I, it I feel does. like that's yes, what we're like getting at, man. I feel I feel like we're like in special contexts, they will be sold for a great deal of money. But no, here's the problem. Here's what you guys did that was bad. <laughs> You were saying that the tuna is that a tuna can be worth that amount of money. So the, the guy didn't pay a million dollars for it. But yes, but it wasn't okay, the value so. of the tuna. It was like a it's a <sighs> symbolic ceremonial thing. It has nothing to do with the value of the tuna. Yeah, no, you're completely right, and we're okay, completely wrong for yeah misrepresenting the like the average value of a tuna. If yeah. one a year gets sold that way, in the dick swinging contest, then it's not the value of the tuna. Yeah. Yeah, that's, all. that's well, all, man. If you're charging, I guess the wholesaler that these dudes on the uh, outer banks there that are selling the tuna to, they're not going to get that that money. No, so I guess that's regular. He's got, got nothing to do with market what, That's price. the interesting thing is doing some trickle down economics yeah. to make yeah. sure the dude that caught the fish winds up getting five hundred grand or something. Yeah. Um, let, let's do introductions real quick. I wonder what a backdoor deal at a restaurant will get you though. This guy that wrote Arrested in, this guy that, <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It'll get you a ten thousand dollar fine. This guy that wrote in, uh, one of the guys that wrote in about this was very close to this and knew the players involved and kind of explained a little bit of the backstory oh, on this on this tuna. And it seems as though uh, there was some other boats around, and somehow this guy thought it's possible to to do this without. To, to, to deal with a fish of this size without attracting attention. And it seems like he blundered in a number of areas. And people were aware of, like, hey, that guy just drove by with a 500, 400-pound tuna hanging off the end of his boat. Um, Seth, uh, introduce yourself. Uh, Seth Bergley. I don't know how much you want me to say, but I grew up... There's no, there's no... I, can't, I had an S in there when I wrote your name down. Bergs? No, Bergley. Bergley. Yeah. No S. Yeah, a lot of people call me Bergs, but... You know, a lot of nicknames, no S. Um, grew up northeastern Montana, farmed and ranched up there. So that's kind of my background is agriculture. Started hunting when I was about three years old. 
BB gun and sparrows weren't safe and been doing it ever since. Um, What's northeast Montana? Uh, north of Brockton. So oh. kind of between Plentywood and Wolf Point. Yeah. Kind of up in no man's land. Dated a gal from Plentywood one time. <laughs> Go ahead. Wasn't your sister? You got a sister? I don't. Well, oh. I do, but she wasn't in Plentywood. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so we moved down to Billings when I was in high school. My dad had some health issues and uh, culture to healthcare stuff and started college there and then got a scholarship to go to Ohio State and I, uh, on a shooting scholarship. So shot competitively there. And then the Army picked me up after that to go shoot for them and spent a few years doing that. And moved back to Montana and got involved in politics a little bit on the state level. And state representative. State representative. Representing the people of, representing the good people of. Carbon County. So it's the area that basically from just south of Laurel all the way to Red Lodge, you know, Luther Roscoe area, and then south of the border. How many so constituents do you have? About 10,000. So it, it's funny. I was, I was just in D.C. and I was talking to a state representative from Virginia and talking about you know, campaigns and constituents and that sort of thing. And so I asked him, I was like, what's a, what's a campaign like for a state representative in Virginia? He's like, oh, you know, like three or $400,000. And I was like, well, an expensive one here is about forty. So <laughs> it's a little bit different. You guys got a yeah, but that's of, still four bucks. That's still four bucks for every constituent. Well, that's an expensive one. Yeah, the yeah. average is probably about six to ten, maybe six to ten thousand dollars. Yeah, so, <laughs> so it's it, about a buck per. In an election, you're you're looking at like five hundred to a thousand votes is swinging the. I mean, yeah, yeah, a thousand votes is a big big difference. I think we have a high voter turnout in Carver my County area. Does. Yeah, it was like sixty seven percent or something like that, and yeah, it's about. I want to say what we have. Uh, about yeah, well. Registered voters, there was probably a higher turnout than that. There's about 6,400 votes, I think. So, yeah, but it can be swung. A lot of the districts are a handful of votes, 20 votes, 40 votes. Really? Some of them, usually there's one or two in the state that come down to five or eight votes, and they do a recount, and, oh, he won by three, so. <laughs> wow. And you were saying that most, like, most state legislators, uh, they have another gig. Like, oh, yeah, you can't make a living at this. I mean, they say we make eleven thirty-three an hour or whatever the, it's the state wage, but that's eight-hour days. So, you know, when we're in session, I don't know. I mean, I guess there's some days we get out earlier. You have a half day that you work. But generally, if you're involved or you've been around, you're there at 6, 6.30 every morning, and you often won't leave till 8, 9 o'clock. So if you work 6 to 6, that's kind of an average day. So you're not really making that much money. How many, <laughs> so everybody has a job. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no. I was just going to say, how many terms have you done? Uh, this is my third term. Okay, cool. So, yep. And then you're only getting paid when you're in session. That's kind of a, people think you're on like a salary deal. It's You get paid every day that you're working. And then we get a per diem, but you're moving up there and paying rent and buying food and stuff. So it's not really a money-making gig. You do it for the for your ideological reasons or to try and help people out. So Yeah. I've got or you a, could do it as a, as a launch pad, right? Some people might. I don't see that as my pro- projection, I guess. No. I like uh, life. It's good when you're really – there's when you look at the the makeup of the legislature, you get a lot of retired people because they have time to do it. You get some younger people that kind of have time on their hands, or you know, independent business owners, guys that can do their own thing, take some time off. And you get lawyers because they can just shut the practice down. Like, all right, I'm not taking any – I'm not doing any work for four months, and then they'll come back. But – it's kind of tough for, you know, if you're in the egg world, you know, there's a lot of guys from, you know, out in the sticks that are ranchers or farmers and farmers have it a little easier because they usually can't get in the field, especially this year. They won't be in until after we're out, but a lot of guys are starting to calve right now. So their wives are at home, you know, calving things out. The neighbors are helping them out. So it's, it's a tough gig if you're kind of a working man. How much uh, of your job is balancing out all of Carbon County versus Red Lodge? 
Like you got a lot of people bitching about like out of staters and red lodge and second homes and Yeah. It's it's more of the ideologies, I think. It's not there's some really good people on both sides. I mean, you get people that have lived here for five generations can be, you know, just as one side or the other. Really? And yeah, people in Red Lodge can be everyone's like, Oh, they they gotta be from California and be super liberal. And it's like, Well, I know guys from California that are like more conservative than anybody else in the county. So <laughs> it's it's not so much like where you're from or where you live. It's more about just kind of how you think about things and people tend to group together. So it is, you know, the county's a lot more agricultural, rural, people that have been around for a while, a lot more farm, you know, kind of agri- uh, production kind of based. And Red Lodge is a lot more retirement. And then you got the ski hill, so you kind of get that aspect too. You know, you get more more people that just kind of in and out and feels like to ski and hang out. So you kind of get some of that too. So, so you it's, kind of, you got the, it's like definitely, it's you definitely got a microcosm more, of Montana, man. It totally is. You know, that's like, I tell people, it's like, this is exactly like if you took Montana and squished it into one county, it's like, that's Carbon County. Cause you've got kind of like this, you know, everybody jokes like, oh, it's the hippie town. You know, all the people that live out there. And it's like, you know, you know, the mountain town, a little more palatable for some people. I don't know. And, uh, but it's like, it's kind of like Missoula, you know, you've got that kind of, yeah. that type of group, that dynamic and then you've got the two river valleys in carbon county we have the clark's fork and rock creek which is kind of like the missouri and you know the yellowstone and then southeastern county is all just sagebrush nothing it's like if you go to broadus it's like people live out here it's just <laughs> nothing and then there's oil there's oil in southeastern part of the county and then we have a lot of coal too you know carbon county they named it that because of the coal mine there in bear creek so you have some of that industry and so it is. It really is kind of like a little microcosm of Montana. And then you got the mountains, you know, the western slopes. Yeah, and you got grizzly bears, and you got do. wolves, and you got elk, and yeah, everything. Turkeys, a lot of turkeys. To be honest. Yeah, just drive to just go to Red Lodge. <laughs> I wasn't going to mention it. <laughs> no. You guys got any fox squirrels? Any fox squirrels in your district? I have not oh, seen yeah. a fox squirrel. They're definitely there. I know for a fact. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm I'm looking at my retirement home out there, and, and not for the skiing, <laughs> for the squirrels. Damn it. Okay, and then uh, so so Seth is with us, and then uh, Giannis, of course, Ben O'Brien, Old Cal, four oh six, Sam Lundgren. Uh, dude wrote in real quick. Dude wrote in. We were, talk- we were talking about chafing a little bit. Chap ass chafing. Guy wrote in that he chafes when he swims. That doesn't doesn't even <laughs> seem possible. In salt water or fresh water? Yeah, salt water. He says a lot worse. Chafes when he swims. Yeah, I could see that. I can't see Chase, that. in salt water, fresh water. Yeah, I, I mean, you got you got sand mixing around, and you know, just kind of that abrasiveness of salt water. I feel like you know, I've been splashing around, snorkeling, and chafing. stuff. And, Is yeah, chafing not about chafing. the presence of moisture? Like, yeah, I don't know, man. Well, but how do we define like what causes chafing? Plenty of moisture in water. Just his skin. <laughs> it depends, because you saying it's a big man's problem. <laughs> Because there's yeah. a lot of yeah. contact. Yes. Like, my legs don't brush. No. You know? So that's why most people think of, like, when chafing, you think of chap ass, because everyone's, like, most people are going to have some skin-on-skin skin, contact yeah. in their gluteal crease. <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, I was reading a thing. The UP, Michigan's Upper Peninsula, where I live very briefly, uh, they're just getting walloped. There's a deer biologist in the UP saying if things continue, this, this winter keeps humming along like it is, He's predicting they will lose 40% of their white-tailed deer this winter. That's Whoa. wild. I had a, our local biologist told me the High Line lost 40% in some areas last year. Is that right? Well, mm-hmm. 40%. 40%. Man, you think hunters kill deer. <laughs> uh, talked about the tuna. 
big correction. I I was talking about uh, the great poet Robert Service, and I mentioned like American poetry, and boy, that got some Canadians riled up. (laughs) He said, a guy wrote, he says, as a Canadian and a British Columbian, I worry about our culture being overshadowed by America and our attempts to maintain a distinct identity from our Southern neighbors. And he even spelt it that cute Canadian way. <laughs> uh, that U, just put that U in there for emphasis. He was huh? like real worked up about misidentifying Bob's service. But that, he was born in England. So let's... Oh, so they can't even claim. They and then he went to claim. school in Scotland? Yeah, he moved to Scotland when he was five. And was born in England. So... Really? Sorry, sorry, bro. I don't even hear from any Scotsman. Land. Spend so much time in the Yukon, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're in the Yukon, you definitely differentiate yourself from those folks down in British Columbia. Yeah. So I guess I think of him as an American poet because I feel like that's where his audience is. Yeah. And it's English. <laughs> He's a British Canadian American poet. And then he. <laughs> and we just kind of appropriate Scottish. anything yeah, Canadian. Scottish. Like. Sorry, Scott. Yeah. You just pick, like, if there's something in Canada and you, you like it, you just act like it's American. Yeah. <laughs> and then it sort of is. <laughs> I think he spent like 40 years, like the last 40 years of his life in Europe, in yeah. London, Paris. Bob Service. Yeah. Robert Service. Bob. Yeah. yeah. I call Robert Frost Bob Frost, and I call Robert Service Bob Service because I think it makes him more... You know, you know the poems of Bob Frost, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, that thing about building fences. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, he was, the, he was the, an American poet laureate. Bob Frost. He's got that poem where the two dudes are like, they spend all their time building a fence between their properties. Like, good fences make good neighbors and like an old stone savage. And like, you realize all they care about is like very carefully delineating the line between their properties. And that's like what they dedicate their lives to. I, I will admit that uh, I definitely, I definitely disserviced Robert Service because uh, my impression <laughs> of him. Uh, so I bought a book of collected works um, from the air, little airport shack in King Salmon, Alaska. They sell Robert Service books? Yeah. Yeah. Because they want, they're like, oh, I think they want, everybody likes to like lay claim. Are they just claiming? like our friend? He's Alaskan. Yeah. 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 You're yeah. saying that you're down on, you're saying you don't like his poetry because it all rhymes? No, no, no. Oh, okay. <laughs> this was, I just bought his book while I was waiting on our plane out to the peninsula to go hunt uh, brown bears. And it was just like, Winter would not leave and spent a ton of the trip, you know, shoulder to shoulder with three other dudes in a tent. That sounds like a Bob Service poem. Oh, yeah. And so I was super into (laughs) Robert Service and just, but I had like reading that book front to back 12 different times on that trip, um, I'd kind of come to the conclusion that there's no way this guy got stationed in the Yukon because he was a crackerjack banker. You know, I figured like he was put out there cause he kind of had like some drug or alcohol problems. And then, you know, all of his poems talking about like the working class, um, it just kind of got ingrained in my brain that this guy probably did what a lot of poets and writers do is die a bad death somewhere destitute and, yeah drunk under some bridge exactly yeah. but that's not the case at all he turned out to uh, be quite quite the straight arrow really yeah and i didn't didn't learn that until just recently so it made some money off his it writing 
he was the most wealthy writer in Paris at one time. Well, what? Yeah, yeah that's saying oh, something. See, I would have rather, yeah. especially in his day, he died drunk under a bridge. <laughs> that's right. He's way less interesting. He's way really? less interesting this way, right? If but, he uh, yeah, because a lot of poets nowadays it. are too lazy to rhyme all their poems, and but that yeah, guy had yeah. that work ethic that needs to go into like rhyming that stuff out to the bitter end. This man. guy not lazy. Like he had a pretty sizable fortune going, and then um, he couldn't. When World War One broke out, he couldn't join up because of his physical condition. So he joined the Red Cross, and uh, kind of like a, Hemingway, yeah, litter yeah. bearer, and won a bunch of medals. He sounds like too good a dude to be a poet. Like a poet should be <laughs> under a bridge, drunk, drunk like yeah. Hemingway, screaming at people. Yeah, you just were. Did you just use the word litter bearer? Yeah. Have we talked about um, tomb the movie Tombstone? Oh, not for a long time, but I know where you're going with that. The um, yeah Huckleberry. So, real quick, then I gotta get on to some other stuff. <laughs> then, we gotta, then we're gonna talk about shooting. Then we're gonna talk about shooting with Seth. So, it's okay. I don't know if this is true. I haven't looked into this, but I've heard this. Everyone knows that that it's in Tombstone, right? Yeah. The dude Ace Man from Top Gun. Yeah. Who plays uh, Val, Kilmer. Val Kilmer. Val Kilmer. The great Doc actor Holiday. Val Kilmer. Yeah. And Val Kilmer is also, I'll point out, very good in Heat, yeah. Michael Mann movie. So Val Kilmer says to a feller, uh, I think he's fixing to shoot him maybe, or someone's fixing to shoot someone. Yeah, they're about to duel. They're about to Val duel. Kilmer says, I'll be your, he's like, do it, shoot me or whatever, pull your gun. I'll be your huckleberry. Okay, no, what the hell does that mean? No one knows what that means. Someone was telling me, and listeners will write in and hopefully clarify this point. Someone was telling me that, he messes that he messed the line up, or someone the writers messed it up, or something got messed up. The expression is, he's like, "Go ahead, you know, pull your gun. I will be your huckle bearer," which would be a term for he's saying, "Try it. I'll be your pallbearer." Yes. Wow. Not I'll be your huckleberry. Have you watched it like Mind 10 blown. times in a row to make sure that he actually does say he also Huckleberry? Says, he says I'm, it like five times. I'm your time. Huckleberry. He says it like yeah. five times. So I'm your Huckleberry. I'm your Huckleberry. Right. That's right. what he, he says. says. He says, I'm, I'm your Huckleberry. Huckleberry. Johnny Ringo. Johnny, Johnny Ringo. Like someone Johnny just Ringo. walked on your grave. Your grave. <laughs> uh, I shouldn't have brought it up. You should, never bring up <laughs> you should never bring up stuff you don't know what you're talking about. He was too high strung. <laughs> Real quick. Real quick. Uh, quick question for you. Guy writes in, he's got, I, I don't really understand this. He's, he's got a bow that it maxes out at 60 pounds. And he's like, man, I want to go elk hunting. Can I, can, am I irresponsible to elk hunt with my 60 pound bow? I'm guessing compound. Yeah. I'd say absolutely not. Absolutely not. Not? Absolutely not. not. Okay. Dude, my long, long totally. bow is 52 pounds. Yeah, yeah absolutely mine's 54. Not. Yeah. Just yeah. understand what your weapon can do. That's all. All matters. Get close. Don't be bombing them at sixty yards. Yeah, sixty pound compounds like an eighty pound yeah. longbow. I mean, how many guys hunt with eighty pound longbows? I mean, oh, mine was like fifty. I just recommend pounds. that he uh, has a heavy arrow. Yeah, I was gonna say yeah, heavy yeah. arrow. Yeah, you should be shooting a heavy arrow with a sixty pound bow. Any yeah. bow, fixed blade, broadhead, and a heavy arrow. Go to town. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a humongous man. Um, <laughs> I'm not a humongous <laughs> man, but I, I pull quite a bit more than that. That's what, I was just curious, but I don't know what his circumstances. Well, what are. how? What are you pulling? I shoot seventy. Uh, okay, a guy wrote in from the military, and 
he, he says, you guys are talking about whether you use, when you're trying to explain to someone where something is, so you're, you're looking out on the landscape and you're like, you see a deer and you're trying to explain where the deer is. And we were talking about whether you sh- that's described as talking someone into something or talking someone onto something. He says, military feller, he says, it seems like the hegemony, his word, settled on the former. Now, he's a U.S. Air Force Joint Terminal Attack Controller, JTAC. JTAC. Our job is to call in air-to-ground fire in support of ground forces. They damn sure talk people on to something. (laughs) 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 They do not talk someone into something. Um, He has some more... Call in fire, though. You don't call on fire. So you're calling them onto it, but you call in fire, so... That's a good point. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. He says, assuming every one of us has more or less the same knowledge base, what really sets a good JTAC from from a great one is our ability to get aircraft overhead and talk their soda straw. Do you know, are you following all this? Talk their soda straw sensor onto a target expeditiously and facilitate fire. The term we use is talk on because you are verbally moving the pilot's eyes from the known to the unknown. We work big to small. Also, whichever direction you are facing is 12 o'clock, as opposed to changing it every time you talk on to a known spot. That part I don't understand. So you find your fixed point. It's like on a hillside. You know, all right, the big tree, everybody got the big tree. All right, the deer's, you know, 12 o'clock. So you are the known point because he knows where you are. Oh, so that, that's what I was wondering. He so, must know where the person is. Yeah. I got you. So then you're designating off of, all right, my 12 o'clock because otherwise it's changing no matter where he is. So. And he always knows where the guy's facing then. Yeah. Now, here's the hottest Gosh, tip. Laser designator. Here's the hottest JTAC tip that I'm going to adopt from now on. We were talking about using it as a unit of measure. So let's say you have a thing. Let's say there happens to be a deer by a school bus. And everybody can agree, like, that's a school bus. Common scenario. Yeah, you'd be like... um trying to explain distance. What they do is you pick something out on the landscape and make that a unit, a distance unit. So let's say you can agree on a, a lone cedar tree on a ridgetop and the deer's somewhere off to the right. You take the width of that known cedar tree and that becomes your unit of measurement. That'd be a shitty one because it'd be very small. So all of a sudden you'd be talking about, well, 50 cedar trees away. (laughs) Okay, but let's say you're talking four. A rock band. Sure, but whatever. He's just saying like pick a known thing and make unit distance units off the known thing. Yeah. So if let's say it's a, let's say the deer's pretty close. Someone can't see it. Go like, okay, that's our unit of measurement. Yes. Three. Go three of those over rather than being like a little bit. A teeny ways or, or, or yards. We're even. always trying to do yards, yards, which is like, like wow. At what point your yards or mine? We're always like, I like twenty yards. Like I don't know how the hell many. You could go over there and wind up. It's ten yards, it's sixty yards. So For make sure. a unit of measurement and march their eyes on that unit of measurement. I've done it with clouds before. Is that stupid? Yeah. You see that big moving cloud? You see <laughs> how that just, cloud? You right see there. how it just turned into a mustache? <laughs> well, go to the right. <laughs> go to the right of the mustache. Um, on the subject of naming guns, a little bit of feedback from people. A guy's saying that you can't name you. One guy says that he has a rifle that he gave it a name and he feels okay with it because he has a 6.5 by 68, a 6.5 by 68, which I didn't even know was a gun. I'm Did not familiar. This? I've not never six heard of a 6.5 by 68. 6.5 by 68? That's what he says. Some crazy wild cat. And he even says that he times, since it's 6.5 x 68, he times it out. It comes out to 442, so he calls it the 442. 
Another guy was saying, you can't, the same way you can't give yourself a nickname, if you're going to nickname a gun, it can only be given by other people who name the gun. The same way you can't give yourself a nickname. Somewhat legitimate. Yeah. Hmm. His buddy has a gun. He keeps too much oil on it. And one time he dropped a duck hunting and an oil slit came off it. And so they call his shotgun the Valdez. <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty good. Ask that guy, ask oh. that guy if he's got a dog and who named the dog. <laughs> Uh, th- this is the, la- the last note I'm ever going to give about cheese curds. Or top, uh, so, like, cheese curds, when you buy them, they squeak. If you've been to Wisconsin, you know about this. It's the only thing I like about Wisconsin, except for Doug Dern. That's a joke. But uh, cheese curds, like, when you buy them, they get squeaky. Then you leave them laying around, and they lose their squeak. And Doug Dern feels as though it's like a sin against God and man. He's like, why would you ever let your curds sit around so long that they'd lose your- their squeak? And, like, if you let them sit that long, you don't deserve to have squeaky curds. And these boys in Elroy, Wisconsin, were telling us that you leave them on the dashboard of your truck in the sun, they'll re-squeak. Someone was telling us that if you microwave them, they'll get squeaky again. This guy's saying the absolute best way to revive your neglected cheese curds is to place them into a colander and run hot water over them for about a minute. They will be not just as good, he says, in, in a, he makes a parenthetical, if not better mm. than right when they came out of the vat. Okay. I'll be trying that. Yeah. A little cheese because Wisconsin turkey season's coming up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> can, I, can, I, can I? Go ahead. So I'm going to start asking Seth questions yeah. about shooting. I, I got one that might be a good way to lead into you got it. Can you, can you pivot off it? Yeah. I might be able to. Well, I got two, and, and I'll see, see if we can do this first one quickly. The dude wrote in. This is interesting because it's, kind of, it's kind of about shooting, but he's got a predicament that he's found himself in twice. I want you guys to all weigh in and see if, uh, what you guys would do in this situation. He went backcountry elk hunting in Colorado with his buddy. And <clears throat> on the third year, they went back three times. They finally got into a bull. On the last day, um, it was, and they trade days on who gets to be the shooter and who's calling, right? So it was his day to shoot. Bull comes in. He's going to have a perfect shot at they, 50. Hold on back up. What about the three years? That's just bad. They, they've been yeah, they've been hunting three years. Unsuccessful. Had, hadn't got a shot yet. Okay. Yep, hadn't killed nothing. And on the third year, last day, it's his it's his day to shoot. And bull steps out, and right as he's getting ready to shoot, he hears another bow go off. He sees the arrow smoke this bull, and he ends up still punching his trigger because of just like he's like, whoa, what the fuck? And 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 shoots an arrow too. His arrow hits in the paunch. Bull goes like 30 yards, tips over and dies, ends up being a nice 320-inch six-point. Um, and he's like, dude, thought it was my day to shoot, right? And he's like, oh, really? I, I thought it was mine. Like, sorry. And so <laughs> hold on a second. Yeah. Hold on a second. Mm-hmm. Fist fight. The, the, the two guys are hunting together. Yeah. They call in a bull. Mm-hmm. And he's saying that both of them simul like virtual like almost yeah. simultaneously launch arrows. Mm-hmm. Both hit. The Can't one you, who shot first was in the taller like, position. That, that yeah. seems to me. Like, can you look over and be like, "Are you? Oh, you're drawn. Your bow's drawn. Are they with each other? Or are they in different spots? Because if they could see each other, it's not like a subtle thing you're doing there. Typically, a call setup is like twenty to fifty yards spread out. One guy in front, one guy in sure. Back. Typically, typically. But, I mean, I've also called in bulls standing right next mm-hmm. to a dude and been whispering in his ears when to draw a bow. So, 
Yeah, I don't know. Thick timber, he could have been 10 yards away and definitely been could have drawn and been doing jumping jacks, and the other guy wouldn't have been able to see what yeah, he was okay, doing. Okay, let's just right? take it at face value. Yeah, we'll take so, it. So anyways, uh, they split the meat like it always happens, and uh, they can't decide on who should get the antlers. The dude who was supposed to be shooting. Yep. Oh, but he got a bad hit. He got a bad hit. Might have not killed Can he it. blame his bad hit on the fact that the other guy shot? That's what I was thinking. Yeah, totally. Right now, they're going one. They're, they alternate years. They swap it out in each other's houses. It seems like two nice guys. Right? Yeah. I know a lot of guys that would be, not be so nice. I'd saw it down in the middle and just each have an antler. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. The old Kept Solomon trick. You, yeah. know? Yeah. So you just get half. I just, you, know, you know what he might not be realizing you can do when you saw something in half? He, he probably doesn't realize how you're supposed to put that to your wall. It'd be pretty bitching as half. You don't half. put it aiming out. You cut it down the skull. Did they mount it or just have the skull? Didn't say. If they mounted, I don't know what they're supposed to do. Do a two D mount. No one wants a saw. No one wants a unicorn. I actually, unless I actually it's the old school. This. If it's the old school where he's looking, where the mount is a shoulder mount, looking dead nuts forward, so you could put it right on the wall. <laughs> so then you can split it, turn it sideways, and plaster it against the wall. That, that actually could sweet. be cool. That'd be sweet. really cool. If it's yeah. a skull, you cut it and don't have them looking out. You have them plastered against the wall, which looks. Very cool. Yeah. And then you're like kind of artistic, maybe an innovator. Yeah. We in work space. Your, your wife's going to like it. Either. Tell him to get a house it. with the same floor plan too. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be helpful. We if were going to do that one time. We were going to bandsaw a, a buck down the middle because it kind of stepped out in a narrow opening and a buddy and I were 10 yards apart and just both pulled up and fired. Both hit it. And what happened? Who got to keep it? Uh, we, sp- we split the meat, brought it back. Um, and we talked about it, all sorts of stuff we were going to do, and the skull was lying around for a while, and I did the European mount, and it was sit- sitting in my house. And Who tagged it? Kept sent- I tagged it. I feel like whoever tags it. But, no, um, that's, that's, I, we, that's, we, that's we were going to cut it, but then just he, just ne- he, never, he never yeah. asked for it, never asked for it back, and kind of think got out of hunting. And he kind of blocked his number. Well, but like, <laughs> no, yeah. I, I still know. But him. whoever tagged it took a hit, right? You don't know that they're, taking, that they're filling their tag for the team. Yeah, one that's, if you took the question to a game warden, the game warden would want it to go to who tagged it. And if you did a curvy shoulder mount where the deer's looking <laughs> curvy, and then you split it dead nuts down the spine and split the thing, then you have a curvy wall, which is tricky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You, live in you had to live in a, in a castle. Yeah. Or they have like the planetarium par- or something. <laughs> or a yurt. <laughs> or they have the parapet. Um, Seth, you were telling me, so you kind of walked us through the thing of how you became a competitive shooter. Um. How, like, first, I want to ask you another question. Then I want to get into how this all happens, how, how a fellow gets into this. Okay. But you were telling me that, that you used to shoot pistols competitively. Right. So that's what I did at Ohio State was shoot pistols. And you were and saying it, that some guys set the trigger so light that if you point it toward the sky and shake it, it yep. goes off. Yep. So that's an uh, event that they actually just removed from the Olympics. But it's called <laughs> shooting in the sky. Not for that reason. It's Not called, for that reason. It's called pew, pew, pew. It's where you just run around shooting no, in the sky. No, so some of those guys are running like 50 to 70 gram triggers on those things. Ooh, it's, called, wow. it's called free pistol. Ooh, 50 gram. And so it sounds super dangerous, but the reality is, is that. You're in a you, controlled setting. You've got it. Right. You've got your pistol pointed downrange and you, it's, most of them are some sort of falling block, you know, so you're one. Explain that to folks. So it's a. Uh, it's kind of like the Ruger number ones. If you've mm-hmm. ever seen those, you've got a little switch on the bottom where you just flick it open, it drops a block down, you put the bullet in. 
you close it back up, the block comes up and locks it in. So it's kind of a like a block mechanism behind the chamber. Mm-hmm. And that's how most of them work, some sort of falling block for the single shot. So it's 22, you put your round in, lock it. And then you're aiming down your lane, and there's usually, you know, they have wind breaks or something. But so you've got six or eight shooters at, you know, maybe four that are wide. And then you've got your targets outdoor. You shoot, it's 50 meters away. 50 meters. Yep. So... You Which cut, is like damn hard with a pistol, man. Yeah, and it's about a two, just under two inch bullseye at 50 meters. So it's, I mean, it's smaller than a coffee cup lid. So they're Sweet. It's small. So if you come up and you were to accidentally, you know, touch this thing off, that's a zero. And it's 10, 10, 9, 8 out is how it's scored. So you drop 10 points on one shot and you got to count. I mean, you count it. So that's 10 points down. Is You're, this IDPA? No, it's, well, it's international, international pistol style. So it's Olympic. They shoot it all over. They have World Cups and. Did you ever shoot that competition? Which one? The free? More, the one we're talking about. Yep, yep. Free was one of my events in college that I shot. So raising a pistol and shooting something that's two inches in diameter at 50 yards. So we, we shot a lot of indoor. Your 50-foot indoor target's about the size of a dime for your 10 ring. How many shots in a row can you put in there? Mm, the best I've ever done is like 11, I think. Out of? 60 in a row. Um, for a full match in the 20s somewhere. The key with free pistol is not screwing up and shooting sevens and eights. <laughs> so if you shoot a bunch of tens, if you can hold the nine ring, that's like the world's best shooters are pretty much holding nine ring with a lot of tens. And your nine rings at 50 meters, about, I don't know, four inches probably. So it's about keeping a group. And now they've changed some of that. They went away from if you touch the ring, it scores higher to now they do a lot of it on a decimal. So if you shoot a center center, it's 10.9. And if you shoot just touching the edge of it, it's a 10.0. And if you go just mm. outside, it's a 9.9. So rather than going, you know, guys that can shoot super deep shots and then throw an eight, you're going to score better than now because it's all just decimal. So it's like how close can you keep them to the middle? So it's a little bit more fair, I guess, that way. Why did the Olympics get rid of this kind of thing? Well, a lot of it is it's not – some of them aren't super fun to watch. I mean, this is like a marathon of shooting. So you're shooting at 50 meters at 60 shots in like two hours. So it's super long. And a lot of it has to do with they kind of are going away from sports that aren't men and women together shooting. So you go to some of the rifle events, there's a lot more crossover. You're wearing jackets and you're shooting in a more controlled environment. And like some of the ladies outshoot the guys, whereas free pistol is a more of a uh, there's a lot more physical involved. You don't get any real supports. You're not wearing, you know, jackets or pants or anything to make your position and the better are like super they're canvas like, like right yes yeah. canvas super like stiff. a super thick canvas so you get locked in there and you literally or can't even move so it's super stable so they're kind of going away from sports that can't be um both genders i guess and it's not super exciting to watch i guess so <laughs> so what know. are the other shooting sports that are in the olympics um so they have shotgun that's a big one in the shotgun because you know you go to the middle east or some of those countries and shotgun's a huge huge deal it's a big money sport in a lot of places they do air pistol still, so air pistol, um, air rifle, and then small bore rifle. And then they still do rapid fire pistol, which is a 22 event where you've got five big bullseyes, which is what I shot when I went to the Army. It's, they're just big, giant black bullseyes at 25 meters. And your 10 ring's pretty big. It's like three, three and a half inches. And that's uh, more dynamic. So you start with your gun at a 45 down. And they've got lights or turning targets. Most of the upper class ones are lights. And when the light goes off, you've got to come up and one, two, three, four, five, shoot your shots. And they do it eight seconds for your – you do two series of eight seconds, two series of six seconds, two series of four seconds. I've watched that before, and it's not boring. Not no. To, at least to me. It's pretty cool. It's and they've changed it for the finals to where rather than being scoring, if you're a 9.5, you get a hit. 
9.5 or better, you get a hit. If you're 9.4 or lower, it's, it's a miss. So when you come up, you just one, two, three, and then they just, oh, this guy got four hits. So people can just look at that. It's really easy to, oh, he shot a 9.9. It's like, I don't know what that means. What's a 9.9 or 10.2? I really enjoy watching the biathlon. Yeah. That's, that's got to be my favorite Olympic yeah. sport. That's kind of the only one that I think people know is in the Olympics. Right. The yeah. other ones, it's like 3.30 in the morning. Are the morning, rest of them know? in Summer Olympics? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not when they're doing it. Those are Summer Olympic games. Yep, Summer Olympics. Is biathlon the only winter shooting sport? Um... I believe so. I don't think they have any strict shooting sports. I think it's just the ski and ski and shoot. What countries are the best shooters? Um, America's decent. It depends, like shotgun. Like we are. Kim Rohde. Kim Rohde. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Vincent Hancock is. He's won gold medals at just about every Olympics that he's went to. So we've got some really really solid shotgun. Our shooters. most medaled Olympians are shooters, right? Yep. Yeah. A lot of them. Well, besides you know swimmers, but yeah. Um, yeah. The uh, so they've got a. Uh, Shotgun's good for us. I'd say the big ones are um, China's usually pretty good. South Korea, some of those, the Asian countries put a lot of effort into it. Russia has a really long-standing tradition of shooting um, super well. And that kind of depends. Rapid fire, there's some um, Germans that shoot really, really well in rapid fire. Uh, free pistol, it's kind of a mix. There's like, you know, kind of the bigger countries. A lot of the European countries are really big into shooting. So the people that just generally kick ass at the Olympics... Generally. China, the yeah. U.S., Russia, like yeah. kick ass at shooting. Pretty There's much. not like weird outliers. Um, not really. Shotguns kind of one because you get like, you know, Azerbaijan has a shotgun shooter that comes out and is like doing really well. You know, some random stuff. So is there but, a is there a wing shooting culture in the Arab world? Um, like I know they're big I, into falconry. I don't know. I you know I haven't really paid that much attention to it, but I know. Um, when I was on the army team, they had a shotgun team, and those guys would go over and shoot. And I guess some of the places they go are just super posh you know marble trap houses and <laughs> all sorts of craziness not i mean like built out of yeah built and, out of and talking about logs. hunting you know i don't know if this is like the sporting side but one of the things that they that's big in the shotgun kind of almost like the underground is they do pigeon shoots and so what they do is they have a box with a spring in it and then they have a ring at like you know say 40 50 yards across i think it's smaller than that actually and it's got like a four inch fence and so they've got this ring around it so you sit back at certain distances and they basically push the button, and it springs this pigeon out that can fly, and then you got to shoot the pigeon. If it falls inside the ring, you get the point. And if it falls outside yeah. of the ring, then you don't. <sighs> That's not an Olympic game, though. No, no, no. This I, is just, I don't see that being like, popular in America. I will have, admit to having done that before. Right, uh, and it's big money. But like, they still do tower shoots all over oh, the place. Oh, yeah, all, all yeah. over the place. Huge, like, you get a, huge some money. kid climbs up in a tower and starts throwing pheasants yeah. out. Th yeah. Starts throwing yeah. pheasants over the rail. I did it in the Dominican Republic, and there was five boxes, right? Yeah. You say pull and... Uh, Boing? Uh, yep. Street up, pigeon. Street pigeon comes flying out of the one of the five boxes. And it and launches get, them out. It launches them out. Yeah. springs them out because they, they, ah. they're captive, so they, they you know pin their wings, and they put them in the box, unpin them through... And it springs them out. And you shoot them if they fall, but to, before they get over the fence, you get a point. What's yeah. the diameter of the of the fence? I, well, he no, I. It's not. I've big. only ever done that one time, and 40, I decided 50, ah, 50, I probably 50, won't do that again. <laughs> you know, yeah. you know how people never done it, but it's big money. I mean, people they All have the, yeah, and the tower they, shoots. They, are they huge bet money, money on different shooters, and you can buy shooters and Calcutta stuff, and it's. I mean, people are flying in on Lear jets to shoot these things. So, Yannis, did we talk about turkey shoots? Like when I was a kid, I grew up by a gun club, a private gun, Twin Lake gun club. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, man, I, should, I, need to, I need to call some folks back home and ask them. If I'm not mistaken, they, when I was a little, little kid, they would dig a ditch and put turkeys in the ditch. 
Live turkey? With just their head sticking out, right? Yes. Okay. And if you hit the turkey, you got to keep it and bring it home and cook it for Thanksgiving. Oh. Whoa. Because that was a long ways out. It was like, I remember, it was like, I feel like it was like, you had to use a 22 and the turkeys were way the hell out and you could just see their heads behind a berm. And if you could hit the turkey, that's your turkey. Do you feel like that's the origination of the, the term turkey? I, think that's I, was, I don't yeah, think I'm I don't think I'm making this up. Put them in a box. The, yeah, you heard of this? That's the old school huh. like in the no. turkey shoot. Turkey shoot. Because by the time like, yeah. when I was a kid, turkey shooting was you, you shot a target and then you got a frozen turkey if you want. I think yeah, that was too. the PC version. That, they were like, we got to clean <laughs> this up. We got to clean yeah, this up. It's yeah, like the PC version trap competition. Yeah, yeah. I did some work for my buddy Ronnie Bame at a turkey slaughter facility. And if I was, if you put me in a turkey, if you made me a turkey, and I had, and you said, okay, your Thanksgiving's quickly approaching, um, you can go to Bill Maher, the turkey slaughter facility that we did some work in, and you'll die there, or you can go to Twin Lake Gun Club and die there, I would go to Twin Lake Gun Club to die. <laughs> <laughs> can, we, can we clarify that Bill Maher, not like the comedian guy, he doesn't have Oh, no. It's like B I L hyphen m-a-r i think okay. look that up oh, okay. one or the other these I was, guys I was slaughter i think these guys, these guys slaughter like <laughs> sorry HBO. these guys slaughter, yeah. we type that up yanni these guys slaughter i think when they're gearing up i feel like they're slaughtering twenty thousand turkeys in a day or something like that or some Ooh. insane number and it's like a dude it's a, a lot of turkeys. there'd be turkeys running around turkeys would get out of the trucks and get away and once they hit the ground because they're all in a controlled environment so we had all we had all the materials we, like Ronnie, he's a millwright, and we, we'd have our materials out in the parking lot. And you'd come in in the morning, and you'd find turkeys hiding out in the parking lot in our material. Like, because they'd get out of the truck, and once they got out of the truck, they couldn't mess with them. And so the turkeys would go try to find a place to hide. And guys I work with would catch those turkeys, bring them home. And, and I remember this guy, Rick, he made a little cage at home and would take the turkeys he caught out in the parking lot and put them in the cage and fatten them up in the cage <laughs> and make smoked turkeys out of them. Ah, the good I'm old. telling you what, dude. <laughs> good old days. If it's, P, if it's more PC, if it's more, and it's, it's not even political correctness, whatever it is. If it's, if it's regarded as more ethical to have a guy hit a target and give him a frozen turkey, I, I just challenge that. I'm not. I have no opinion yeah. on the matter, but I just my point. my coming up. Yeah. That it had changed, right? It was a turkey shoot. We're like, all right, we're going to turkey shoot, and all the ones I did were muzzleloader based, so it was all black powder open sights. But yeah. I won. I remember winning my first frozen turkey was quite the accomplishment. I think I took a picture with it, like grip and grin. Hey man, it's a struggle to find time to manage one's finances. It's a struggle to find time to manage my finances. You go through like a busy week, and the last thing you want to do is spend time budgeting. You know, your expenses and tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions you're paying for that you don't use. But now, you use Rocket Money and does all of that for me. I'll tell you, this this happens all the time in our family because, like, something will come out that we want to watch. And they lure you in with a one-month trial. And you're like, oh, you know, I'll do the one-month trial. Then I'll come back and cancel. Then I can watch this whole thing. And then, like, you don't. You forget about it, and then, and then a year goes by, and you've been paying these guys 12 bucks all year and never watched a single thing. This finds that stuff and gets rid of it for you. Rocket Money is a personal finance app. It goes in and finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. It helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings instead. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. Stop wasting money 
on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Again, rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's dawning. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. Onyx Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground, insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. Do you know <laughs> during, um, I'm going to pivot back into uh, wing shooting whatnot. During the Clinton administration, they very early on when they first identified bin laden as a threat they he was out hunting birds in the desert at a falconry camp and they debated hitting him there this is like way back like 92 or something like that they debated hitting him there but there was some other high profile saudis who were also hunting out of that same camp and they decided against it so they almost got him hunting a good way to go. Mm-hmm. That, that, that was my pivot because, watch, I'll, fin- I'll wrap it up. So since they, you know, there's that bird hunting culture through falconry, there's also a shotgunning culture there. And you were a competitive shotgun shooter. Yeah, I never really shot competitively. Well, oh, I I thought shot- that, so what did you do in high school? Um, what did you do in college? I shot 
um, pistol. Pistol. Oh, that's what it was. Yep. And oh, for some reason, there. I thought you you went and you were doing like the competitive wing shooting, not no. wing shooting, but skeet. I I shot it a little bit, played with it. I had my roommate shot competitively, but yeah, I was always pistol all the way through. How did you How did you first like start? How'd you get into that? So I kind of started through a local club when I was in high school in Billings. We had uh, in on the competitive side, and we shot small bore rifle, twenty rifle, and then uh, error rifle. And so I shot that for a couple of years, and then and I was okay, but there's a it's a lot of uh, kind of building up a system of shooting. I mean, you're trying to get your position down, locked down. That's most of what rifle shooting is, is the position. So you're trying to get super stable so that your rifle literally doesn't move. And it takes a while to kind of develop that. Freehanding so, Right. So you're shooting three position. You're shooting uh, offhand, kneeling, and prone. And prone, obviously, is pretty easy. You're, everything's with a sling and peep sights. So that that's pretty easy. And getting into your kneeling and offhand positions takes a little bit more time so I, I was decent but not really great and then i started shooting pistol as kind of uh an add-on to that and was a lot better at pistol and i enjoyed it more there's you know how to put on all the jackets and drag your suitcase around with all your gear so i'm um, i'm a little bit less structured in that regard so i had more fun with it how good can a person get with a 22 rifle um pretty good like what kind of 100 yard group can you shoot with a 22 oh under an inch like with a sling and a shooting just off a of sling prone shooting offhand stuff um they don't really shoot 100 all their matches are 50 yards so okay. but most guys that are good can hold pretty much hold a half inch group shooting irons all the way through three position yeah they'll, they'll drop some points but prone it's to be competitive at the prone level you have to shoot a six, 60 out of 60 at 50 yards and that's wind call so you're shooting your you know it's about a half an inch bullseye that you're shooting at so yeah, if you're at the na- even the national level, the top two or three guys will all be cleaning them, sixty out of sixty shooting peep sights. Have you hunted squirrels much? A little bit. Or cottontails? Yeah, I was I was stationed in Georgia, so Georgia and Alabama is pretty pretty much about hunting all that stuff. So these guys with a nine like, mil, you could clock. hunt. They could hunt. Oh really? <laughs> so they could hunt squirrels and just shoot offhand and hit squirrels out of the trees in the head. Yeah, those guys are some of those guys are nuts. How well how well they shoot? Yeah, I I, I shoot a twenty two rifle decent. I'm not. You know, some of those guys are pretty good, but yeah, I, I always just mess around and take my Glock 9 mil to go squirrel hunting, just get G'd up on that. And you could get that good with that? Yeah, I could hit squirrels with it. Okay. Yeah, best, uh, so funny story, uh, a buddy of mine who's, who's back in the service now, he's actually one of the special forces groups now that I was in the marksmanship unit with, we were teaching classes, because when you're in the, the Army marksmanship unit, it's kind of a dual, you have to be an instructor and a competitive shooter. So you, you do your training and you compete, but you also are on the instructor, instructing side of it. And the unit started in 56, and the, the idea was, is, hey, we need to figure out how to teach people to shoot well. So what's, what better way to do that than have people compete? And then they learn the best way of doing everything, and then they convert that to the military and then teach all the Joes. So that was kind of the, the mission statement of the unit. And it's stayed pretty much the same all the way through. And that was the unit you were in? Yeah, yep, the Army Marksmanship Unit. And it's and that's their still you know your title is a shooter instructor so you're training but then you're also going and teaching, which I found that to be uh, probably the more rewarding side of it just because you're working with guys that this could literally save their life and you know help them to be effective. So we had a class and we were teaching. There was about 20 guys and it was a close quarters marksmanship CQM stuff. So you're shooting rifle, you know, carbines and pistols out to 50 yards. It's kind of the run and gun if you think action shooting type stuff. So we're at this class, and a lot of the guys to qualify, we had a six-inch dot at 15 yards, and that was kind of the standard that we tried to get them to by the end of the class. So 
everybody was kind of shooting and it was lunchtime. And whenever it was lunch, we had ammo laying around and guns. So we always just kind of kept shooting. So my buddy was uh, out there shooting and we look up on the berm and it's kind of about 80 yards to this berm and then maybe 30 or 40 up to the top. And there's this fox squirrel that's running along this berm. And so we see this thing like, I was like, hey, hey, there's a squirrel up there. So of course, you know, it's open season on squirrels and we're like, all right. So uh, the squirrel kind of comes down the berm a little bit and Buddy walks forward maybe 15, 20 yards. So he's not right next to the class. They're all kind of sitting under this covered area. And this squirrel's maybe 70, 80 yards away and it's sitting in this tree. And so he pulls out his Glock, you know, 34, it's like a long slide Glock, nine millimeter. And everybody's looking at him like, yeah, there's no way. You know, we've been trying to hit this six inch dot. So he shoots and I think he missed his first shot at it. Second shot, he smokes this thing. And it's like hanging from the tree. So he shoots again, missed his third shot, shoots again, hits it again his fourth time, and it falls. So he runs up there and grabs the squirrel. So it was really funny watching the expression on all these guys' face. They're like, this guy just shot a squirrel out of a tree at like 80 yards away with a 9-millimeter clock. Oh, yeah, man. <laughs> so that's how, that's kind of where you can get with some of that stuff. Some of those guys that you shoot all the time, it's just, it's crazy how accurate some you can get, especially with a pistol, you know. We carry pistols for bear protection sometimes. And then now and then we'll get around to shooting the pistols. Dude, it's embarrassing, man. <laughs> it's so hard. Well, we took one class um, from a really well-known instructor. By the end of that class, we could all hit a gong at 100 yards yeah. with a 45, 1911. Yep. And it's, it's form, man. The form and, and just... And the mental thing. There's it is. A, there's like a mental thing. Like, I can't hit stuff with a pistol. And yes. it's like, then you watch somebody pull up and shoot a man-sized target at like 200 yards. Like, ding, 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 ding. And you're like, okay, it's voodoo. And it's like, no, it's not. You just have to... You got to get your mind right. There's like a certain way of thinking about pistols and triggering and sights. Yeah. And then once you get the form, like how to lock it down... Most, it, most shooting disciplines are like that, right? Yeah. I mean, shooting a 1,000 yards with a rifle seems intimidating until you lay down and have somebody tell you how to do it. Yeah, and it's true. It's not. And you have a spotter to, you know, to walk you through it. And you've got control. I think that's the other thing about pistols. It's, there's nothing. There's no support system. Where a rifle, you've got a stock, and you, got, you, know, you can kind of make it stop moving and keep it from like twitching. It's like pistol, any little thing. It's all about the mechanics of how you're shooting it. And it goes back to just repetitions, but that was kind of our thing in training. It's the most boring thing in the world, but trying to get your hold super, super tight. So we would literally hold against a wall for half hour, 45 minutes a day. And you work on body sway because you naturally sway when you stand. So you're trying to eliminate all that so that you're not moving your sights back and forth on the target. When you say hold against the wall, you just had your arm up with your thumb. Yeah. But what does that mean? Like you're pushing so, against the wall? Nope. You just take a pistol and you hold it about a foot from the wall and mm-hmm. you got a dot and you just try and hold it on that dot. As, uh, basically work through your body and try and get all the movement out and just work on keeping that as still as possible. And you kind of build up all your little stabilizer muscles. But it's it's crazy how tight you can hold with a pistol once you've if you've trained that for so long because you're shooting at something so small you can't be if you're moving around a lot you know your wobble area you're trying to get that as small as possible and then you just it's like any other pistol you're just trying to break it inside that little wobble but the smaller you get it the more consistent you'll be and the more you know your score will go up how much do your sights matter to you like if you have all all your mechanics down all that matters yeah if because you think about it you know if you're off by a millimeter on your side alignment that's throwing you off by inches at even 50 feet so You know, it, it's sights, front sight, sight alignment. The target's blurry when we shoot. You're just, it's literally just locking those sights in. And we had a, the national coach, his name was Sergei Luzov. He was a Russian, shot running target over in Russia and then came over and was a pistol coach. So he had an accent, but he's like, you know, 
and I don't know if I can do a good Russian accent or not. But you have to try. He's yeah, like yeah. Ukrainian, I think, right? <laughs> Russia. We're pretty. So we're pretty like, lenient. We're pretty uh, lenient on accents, like, man. He's like, we have a. It's like you got to think about it like this. It's, it's like your front sights are not like this. Uh, you're just watching this child walk around the room. He's like, he's like, you have to grab the child and slam him on the on the table and like hold him there. He's like, that's how you work the sights. It sounds Russian. And I was like, well, <laughs> sir, that seems. He's like, you know, they're not just passive. It's like you need to grab them. I was like, okay, okay, I got it. Sights are important. <laughs> Can you? Is there anyone that makes? Does anyone make money shooting competitively? Is there any like? Mi- paid um well if you're good that's the key and uh, i know some of the guys that i shot with in the unit like three guns pretty a lot of guys get out and they go work for you know some of the guys that were i went are now top shooters for sig for instance okay so you go get an industry job like that yeah you make good money or um vincent um that shoots shotgun a lot hancock he's a you know multi-time gold medalist so he's out of the army now and does a lot of training seminars so he'll go and has his own kind of training system and does that so you can make money on that side of it but generally speaking unless you're really really good or you get sponsorships there's not i mean you're not going out and winning hundred thousand dollars i feel like yeah three gun is really the the main one where guys could make i mean because you're gonna get sponsored by right several companies that basically pays and there's some payouts you know explain three gun for people so three gun is uh it's an action sport where you're shooting rifle pistol shotgun so it's a running gun. Anybody that shot like IDPA, USPSA, any of the action pistol stuff, you're running those guns. And there's different classes. So you can run some of them are race guns with ports and a dot on them. Don't even move. And then you've got limited, which is more, you know, you have to shoot iron sights and you're limited on some of your magazine stuff. And then production is just like a stock Glock. You can change a couple things, but not a lot. So there's different classes. And then it's just running through a course and you'll have, you know, AR-15 target. Uh, AR-15 rifle and you're shooting targets that are either paper or steel. So you'll have like knockdown, fall down plates, you know, a lot of steel and it's either two hits on steel or one hit on steel, knock them over. And then you've got paper targets with rings. So like A ring, B ring, you know, C ring type stuff. So you're just running through a course and you have it all, to- all toting, set out. Toting all three guns at once? Not no. not usually. Some of them, um, so there's a match and I haven't shot a lot of three gun, but they had, had a match that um, MGM, it's like the metal target company, they sponsored out in... Uh, Idaho, like eastern, southeastern Idaho, called the Iron Man. And so their stages were, I mean, you'd run a stage and it'd be like four or five minutes long and you'd have to drag dummies and like have weights and you'd shoot, I mean, like 60 shots a shotgun and you're, so you're like loading a shotgun, go through like four magazines on your pistol and it was just super long stages and you're running through and so they say you start here and you got to shoot this bank of targets and you could miss stuff and, you know, you're trying to keep track of everything and like, oh, you didn't see that target. And so that's, those are kind of fun. And then a lot of them are more controlled where it's just a, a tight stage and you just kind of run through and play the game. And it's all about speed and accuracy. So how fast can you move? The guys that are really, really good at it can break down a stage and find the least amount of movement. And sh- it's, they don't tell you how to shoot anything. So you can shoot pretty much any order as long as you're not, you know, shooting back. It's like a 180 plane that you can't break. And people just work through it, and it's it's pretty cool. There's, like work through it, hitting all the targets. Yep, and you're just trying to you know go through and hit everything as fast as you can and with least amount of movement, and then it's all time time versus hits. So. Yeah, a lot of times there'll be a shooting house or like to answer your question about where the guns are, you'll have like a barreled shotgun, right. shotgun, and you get a some of them are staged, up, 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 yeah, or a, a AR-15 on a table. So you know, some of them make you pack them, so you shoot it and then you got to sling it. Run. Like that's where I was going with the Iron Man. It's like you got to sling stuff and carry it sometimes. But a lot of them, like you said, you shoot your pistol. Drop it in a box, grab your rifle, shoot your rifle, drop it in a box, grab your shotgun, finish it out, clear it. 
So that's to keep it safe. And are the mil- are the mil- do the military guys dominate this, or are there people who've never been in the military that are good at it? Um, both. It comes down to training, you know. Obviously, in the unit, if you've got gunsmiths, you know. The thing, cool thing about the AMU is we had a fully functional gun shop with full time guys that are working on machining. I mean, full on CNC machines. They could pretty much redesign and build anything you wanted them to. Full reloading room. Guys that all they do is reload and test. So, in terms of figuring out the market, you got guys like that, which is obviously an advantage. But a lot of it's just time on the range and bullets down range it's time and ammunition man run through run through your stages like everything has to be muscle memory how do i cut off a half a second on this shotgun reload how do i cut off a half a second on this movement half a second here because that adds up and that's the difference between first and tenth i tried this some years ago and it was reloading that got me all the time reloading a shotgun shotgun's horrible i was horrible like fumbling everywhere you drop around you're like oh god i gotta pick (laughs) that up and then you know if you don't get them all in there you're just gonna miss one like you just and then you gotta keep going yeah but military is good we we shot some of that styled stuff, so there's kind of a competitive side. And when we were in, we stood up a team. So the last year that I was in the unit, I actually went over. It's we called the ITG Instructor Training Group. And usually, what we did is we had the pistol shooters kind of teach the close range stuff, you know, the service pistol, international pistol, and then the rifle shooters that were on the rifle teams. They taught kind of the long range wind calling and position stuff, and it worked okay. And what we did, um, some guys stood it up, and then I actually joined the team after they had kind of started working on it was to develop a curriculum that said, hey, we've got guys like like myself and other guys that shot through college and we had, you know, six, eight, ten years of shooting experience. And then we had guys that came over from like the third range of battalions at Fort Benning. So a lot of those guys would come over. So you've got guys that have been deployed six, eight, ten times and spent a lot of time, you know, years in combat. And then you take those guys and you say, all right, what's effective in combat? What's effective if you're if you're in houses, if you're knocking on doors, if you're shooting long range, what type of situations do you see? How do you make this effective? And then we took our shooting ability, said, well, I know how to pull a trigger. I know how to run a gun. But how do you kind of meld the two together so that you're running a gun so it's combat effective? Yeah. And that was really, really cool. And then developing programs through that. So we trained a lot of kind of three gun, but it's like, how do you get your kit efficient? How do you get to stuff quickly? How, where do you put your magazines? How do you set up your rifle so that you're not, you know, everything's quick and efficient. So efficiency of movement is important no matter what, what you're shooting, if it's combat or if it's, you know, training. I, I think I told you this uh over dinner but i one time went down i was the guest of a special forces group in fort bragg and i went down to their compound and i was surprised because i went out to watch them train and they were training on something that seems like so specific they were spending the day training on how to transition from your rifle to your pistol right basically they were training how to drop that and pull your pistol out, so in, and, and shoot a target with it. And it's and you they know, trained it, seems it and trained small. it and trained it. It seems small, it. but you got to think about the situation that you're looking at. Okay, you you bust into a building, and all of a sudden there's guys popping out with guns, and you pull the trigger, and you hear the loudest sound in the world, click, right? And then what now? It's like, well, you can try and clear your rifle and get around in it, or you know, hey, misfire. You don't necessarily know what's wrong. You have some sort of malfunction. Well, we train, and it's kind of been a transition in the military away from, well, get your rifle up. Pistols are just there so you can look good, I guess, to where it's like, no, a pistol can be an effective tool. So that's where you see those transitions. It's like, and I know a guy that I, I did some work with that had a situation where this happened, and it was the same thing as like click. He tried to clear it, click, and all of a sudden the guy's turning around with a gun. It's like, well, what do you do now? It's like, well, I've got a secondary weapon because it's always primary, secondary. That's how they train in the military. He's like, well, here comes the pistol. And basically saved his life. So 
that's why if you shoot and it doesn't go and you've got a threat in front of you, it's like you have to get to your secondary as quickly as possible. And if it takes you three seconds to do that, which isn't a lot of time, but it's a whole lot different than second half, that's why that's such an important thing. And, you know, you start from the ground up. That's where every little, you train every aspect. You start with just a gun low, bring a gun up and shoot. And then you bring a gun up and shoot left and right, you know, transition targets. And then you bring up and shoot close near. And then you do a reload. And then you just kind of work your way through every aspect and then that gives those guys the ability to train. And you can do it without even shooting, you know. You can transition. You can do all that stuff, practice movements. And it's, it's crazy how quick you can shoot transitions and how fast you can move between gear and how fast you do a reload. Where do you put your, your kit? And it all, like you said, it's like we're spending a whole day doing this. It's like, yeah, well. The, the level of detail is fascinating. I recently heard an interview with an FBI agent, and he was saying in the FBI Academy, they teach you how to unbuckle your seatbelt. That they'd like you to take your left hand and put it between your body and the belt, slide down to the buckle, reach a finger around and unclip the buckle and move it so that it diminishes the chances that if you need to get out of your car quickly that you'd become entangled in your seat, seat belt. And like to think about that someone's looking at like that level of specificity. <laughs> like that, that level of specificity. Yeah, that's minutia. And he was saying once you learn it, you never unbuckle your belt another way. It just becomes like how you do Aren't it. Aren't there parallels <laughs> for being in grizzly country, though? Like, if you're thinking about having bear spray and a pistol. Oh, yeah. Like yeah. And, then no ever, to, and then no one ever talks about it. Yeah. No one ever practices it. You have to, like, you should have that transition down. And where, how you get your pistol, how you get your bear spray, and have practiced that, you would think. Oh, yeah. I you never don't, have. You don't practice it. So then we, we talked about doing a thing where now and then when you're out in grizzly country, that now and then someone should just clap their hands <laughs> with a stopwatch and be like, how long does it take everyone to, like, dig through their pack <laughs> find their pepper spray right 32 seconds like, where'd you die <laughs> like, we're all dead it's like ah quick where'd i put that stuff you know yeah man it's, it's the, the same kind of danger it. i'd you know i don't want to get eaten by a bear or shot by a dude you know well and your chances so. if you spend a lot of time in the wilderness you know your chances are higher being eaten by a bear in a lot of cases than getting shot in montana i mean just reality yeah what uh like what makes what makes a good shooter is is it is it I know you can't divide them out, but what makes an accurate or a great shooter? Is it is it psychological or is it physical? Definitely psychological. More psychological. We'd say shooting is ten percent physical, ninety percent mental. What is the mental? So this is where it gets crazy, right? Depends on what you're doing. So if it's a dynamic thing, then it's about training muscle memory, training movements. So it's like building up your your kind of processes, your thoughtless processes on the more intentional side of it so like the stuff that i shot is very slow methodical it's all process based so what you're trying to do is you're trying to get a mental process that is repeatable and then you or a plan and then you stick to that and that's what you're doing the whole time so you work on the physical you know the holding the gun the triggering and all that but then the rest of it becomes mental so we would read a lot of you know golf books tennis books things like that because it's the same idea it's like once you have your golf swing down you know anybody the top 50 guys in the pga can all swing a golf club it's like what's the difference it's like well where they put themselves mentally, the decisions they make, you know, making good shots, following their process exactly the same way every time. And that's where it's, you know, it's like, it's like a lot of things. I guess it's process-oriented versus outcome-oriented. So you're trying to keep yourself from thinking about, well, what's the implications of if I do this or that? It's like, no, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to do my process. And whatever happens, happens. I've trained the process, and I'll stick to it. And that, that you're, you're not obsessing over the outcome. You can't. If, as soon as you think outcome, you're done. That's what I think. Like that's you're the thing done. I found that over the years, I've become. I hesitate to use the word 
I'm not going to say very good. Over the years, I've become good. Um, like good as a rifle hunter. Okay, right. not like I, I don't take insane shots, but I don't have a lot of I don't I don't make a lot of mistakes. Because you just like do this, 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 and then it just happens. But archery. But the the minute the minute something's approaching, all I'm thinking about, I'm I'm in. What'd you say? Outcome. Yeah. All I'm thinking about is outcome. If I do I'm this, like, I don't want to miss it. I don't want to wound it. It's like that's all I'm thinking about with my rifle. I'm not like I sure hope I, I sure hope I don't wound it. I'm, I'm like I'm again. very fo- yeah. I'm very focused with like I'm, I'm very like I know that I'm gonna do what I do, and I know that I will I will be successful. Like I just know that that'll happen. So I've developed that confidence with archery. I can't overcome. It's a major problem with archery. I can't overcome jumping to the unknown, the outcome. It's, it's funny you put it that way because it's just, but, but it's, process. It's, yeah, it's in your head, man. It's I've, in your head. I've got a mental image. This is from like five years ago, still like crisp as day. And it's, this, it's me letting an arrow go on a bull that was about 35 yards away and watching the arrow go do, do, do four inches over its back. Mm-hmm. And like I, I shoot competitive archery a little bit, you know, for a while, and so I can, I can shoot a bow pretty decent. And thirty-five yards is not a long shot, and it's wide open, nothing between us, you know, grass. And he's standing there, and I'm looking, and then you have this mental playback, and I'm thinking because I was kind of in some low grass, and I was trying to stay real, real low. And then I remember, and it's like, okay, so your your mind goes through onto this whole, you know, this whole memory in about you know a millisecond, and it's like you have all these pictures that you can kind of play back. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, when I looked at that pin, there was a triangle that I was looking at that pin through. It was not a circle. That was my peep sight. <laughs> and I know I came back and I was low and I looked right over the top of my peep sight through the little, you know, your little, oh, your little oh, triangle. Yeah. Where and the I, string splits and, to accommodate the And peep, I came through and I was like, this is perfect. And I was like, Phew. and the arrow goes four inches, three, four inches right over his back. Like dead nuts, straight up, right up the back of the leg, right over his back. And only in hindsight did you And realize. I'm like, I totally looked over my peep sight. And it's like something that I don't think I've ever done that before. But like gone, you said, man, yeah. you get in that situation and it's like the blood starts pumping in a big bull and you're like... I've recently gone to a back tension release because I was getting jumpy. And once you go to the back tension release, if you're not, if the form isn't right and you're not pulling the right way, it's not going off. I keep hearing people shot. talk about this, man, it's but it's like, I can't tell if it's true or a trend. It fixes a lot. It but really we does. Just, if it's you, a trend, I, people have been talking about for a long time. Oh, yeah. Long have time. you been yeah, doing this? Not new. I, my brother, like, switched. It's, it, it really, like, what I, when I was practicing with the trigger, you know, one out of six shots, I'd get tired, I'd be jumping the trigger. When you're practicing, what I would do uh, under the, the teachings of John Dudley, like, I would put, I'm focusing on my back elbow, feeling that deltoid muscle pull in the right way, right? Focus on that muscle, focusing on my follow-through. And you almost, you, you stop thinking about your front, your sight. You're thinking about it, am I following through properly? Process. Is my process going? We used to, I used to put, a, and I still do this, put a speaker behind me, directly behind me where I want to pull to, turn music like a, on. Like a public speaker? Oh. <laughs> put, <a> public, <laughs> put Steven or Nell behind <laughs> you, you suck, you suck. Uh, and put music on and pull to the music, right? And and have my elbow go towards the music and focus on, you know, how my elbow is is traveling towards that sound. And you totally forget what's going on in the front half of your body. Hmm. And I'm more accurate like that than any other way. Would and you I, hunt with the back tension? Yeah, I'm going to. I haven't, but I'm going to. See, that's the thing. It was Kenyon was like he Mark Kenyon was talking about. He's going to finish up the season, 
and then switch. So he's got plenty of time to switch into. I've thought about that. I've thought about having a thumb release, which is generally the same setup, but you're, you, you have a thumb trigger instead of yeah, back tension. That's a joke. Right. Had, so you, you flip to that, and it's kind of the same motion, but you have control, right? Yeah. So if an elk's coming in, you don't have to wait. But I've, I, I know guys like, I'd say Shane Dorian and a bunch of guys that I've bow hunted with recently who took the leap and said, I'm just going to hunt with this thing. And next thing I know, they're five shots, five dead animals at all different ranges, all different times. So, I mean, you just adapt to it as being the most sound way to have a process in the woods. Man. I've been thinking about it. It forces you to do it right now. Yeah, it forces you to do it right. I just hate like new learning new stuff, man. Because <laughs> you know what I mean? Like after so many years of doing something some yeah, way, you're yeah. like, I just would rather, it's just easy, not easier. It's, it, you just almost want to double down on what you know rather than really <laughs> yeah. changing. Like if someone said like there's a new rifle out and you put a thing in your mouth, right? And you just bite down to make it go off, which is probably not a bad idea. That's, yeah, well, maybe but, you got but, something. There. But I would be hesitant. No, I was yeah. very hesitant when I w- met with John. I'm like, that's actually a good idea. Yeah, yeah. You just, Somebody write that down. You just like pinch it between your eye teeth. <laughs> Release triggers. Oh, I know. A, I know a guy who got in an accident last year. Oh, man, some like trash compactor thing, and he got like squished in it, messed up his back, While and shoulders, hunting? and no, no, on oh. the job, dude. But he's really, he's really on <laughs> record. He's, he's really, he's really serious, <laughs> real serious hunter. I imagine some of you know. Some of you know him, but he hunted last year with a with a bow with a mouth release because he couldn't draw with, with his tube? shoulder. No, no, like, like a tab. Oh, right with tab. a tab that he was biting and and drawing his bow. Uh, yeah, I grew up with a guy like that. He'd lost his arm in an accident and shot by holding the mouthpiece. Yep. Yeah. I think he might have killed a bull doing that this year, but I don't remember exactly. I think he did. Did he? Are you talking about Josh? Yeah. Yeah. Why, so. why are you guys being all secrety about his name? Oh, Josh no, I, I just just because I couldn't couldn't bring it to yeah. mind right away. Yeah. 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 And you just know, like, how much name dropping do you want to do on the Meat Eater podcast? Right? Yeah. You don't want to bring too much The attention. right amount to not be confusing to people. Right. right. That's my, that's my uh, barometer. Yeah, I uh, feel like you're feeling a little high and mighty in your fancy sweater today. Dude, I'm never. Are we going to talk about it? Are we going to talk about it? Well, let's talk about it. Listen, man. There's either I either make my wife happy or I make you guys happy. And guess who I'm more interested in making happy? Us. <laughs> man, guess. Man's got to. Yeah. Man's got to make this. <laughs> man's got to make my these wife tough commented on how handsome I looked in the sweater she bought me. Yeah, she <laughs> bought you the sweater. That was yeah. intentional. <laughs> that was intentional. She knew she bought it for you. See if he wears it again. I'm gonna start buying you sweaters, just so we can have that interaction. <laughs> It'll bring us closer. <laughs> Uh, nice sweater. Pivoting away from my sweater. <clears throat> that was quick. Psychological. What? Okay, you hunt. This is this is good. You'll be able to answer this. How much so. does what you learn from competitive shooting, where it's just replicating controlled atmosphere, right? Is is hunting just totally different? Yeah. Or there like yeah, the, yes and no. There's crossover. There's tricks you know, of the it, trade. It's uh, it goes back to the process. You got to put yourself like you know I said, and you miss a bull, and it's like, how did I do that? It's like, well, you get amped up and you don't follow through your process. That it's kind of the same thing, you know. It, even combat's the same thing. Guys that go over and they say, well, you, know, you guys are good shooters, but you go to combat, it's going to be totally different. It's like, well, we used to say, you know, you will perform at your lowest level of training. So your worst day, that's how you can expect to shoot. Now you might do better. But That's a good point. You're man. always going to revert back to your lowest level of training. Everybody wants to, you know, peak perform. You're going to rise to the occasion. It's like that eh, doesn't happen very often. You you'll revert back to your lowest level of training. So that day when you feel like crap and you're pulling crappy shots and. That's how you're going to shoot when you get a big bull in front of you. You might shoot better, but that's what you can count on. 
you know your lowest level of training. So it, like it your, does your shittiest day. Yeah, that's, at the range. Yeah, work on eliminating those. That's that's the whole point. You know, like talking about back tension releases. It's like, well, maybe it doesn't give you as much control, but if it's more consistent, like it eliminates those like jerk shots that go off into Neverland. It's like, well, then that eliminates that shot that you. That might be the shot you pull in a bowl, and all of a sudden you shoot him back in the pond or in high liver or something. You, you know, the game you play with yourself, right? Is you're you go, you're out hunting and you throw out a target, and you make a nice shot. The oh, tendency yeah. is to be like, okay, I got this. Done. Yeah. I'm all done shooting. Because <laughs> you want to end on that. Yeah, you want to end on that feeling of that you got it dialed. And if you shoot like a really bad one, you're like, well, I'm going to shoot one more. Yeah, just, I got to, I can't <laughs> yeah. let that sit. Well, and that goes back, you know, some of you guys are talking about longbows. You know, I hunted with traditional for a long time. And it's like that thing, that's really where you got to get your mind right. Because there's no pin to rely on. There's no like, oh, I'll just pull back, put the pin in the right place, and squeeze the trigger. It's like, no, it's all process. I mean, you don't have anything to rely on. You're like, well, I've been doing this for a long time and I shoot a lot, so I'm just going to come back, follow through, touch, and that arrow hopefully is going to go where it's supposed to and try and get, you know, like five yards away. That helps, but it's, it's kind of that same thing. I think yeah, it, when, it does transfer a lot for the, the mental aspect, but I think a lot of it's just the process. What's my process? I get in there and you're thinking about the right thing and think about the first thing. You know, a lot of guys, like, I don't, I don't know how to to break this down, it's like, well, if you get to step one, what's step one? So say a bull comes in, it's like step one is to say, like remind myself, you know, I'm going to squeeze through the shot or I'm going to back tension, you know, whatever works for you, sight, make sure I'm picking the right pin or focus on the pin, you know, let the elk be a little bit blurry or whatever it is that's your first step in that process. And then say, I'm going to do that first thing. I've got five steps or three steps and I'm going to do the first one. And if you do that, it's like your your process then takes over. It's when you get there and you're yeah. like, I don't know, I'm just going to pick a random step and roll with it. Well, then your brain freaks out. That's that's it's step one, and then the rest of them will just go. Like you got to you got to get yourself into that. Start your process, and then it just is automatic or most of the time. You just said two things that resonate with me. I want, I want to back up on one because I think it's such a it's a really interesting point I hadn't thought of is um, practicing to eliminate your worst, which is like. When you're shooting, if you you know if you're if you're out shooting in your yard with your bow, and yeah, one in every six arrows, it's just like what the hell, yeah, right? How did that go? Yeah, and you write it off as like something, but it's like consistently if you throw a bad arrow, yeah, if you could find a way to like think about that rather than trying, you know, and of course you're trying to replicate your good shots to make more of them, but to isolate like the freaks. Well, it's because I have enough freaks for if you just imagine rolling a dice, like if every time if you're in a tree stand, every time a deer comes by. And you got one in six arrows is just crazy. You can never figure out why one in six arrows is crazy. It's going to be in the back of your mind. You're like, well, is this going to be the one? Yeah, the bad one. Well, we, it, you don't like to train stuff you're not good at either. It's like, I like to make this, you know, this is what I'm good at. I'm going to go do that so I feel good about it. But it's like the work involved is finding the areas where you're deficient or weak, saying, well, what causes that one sick shot? Well, it's this. Well, then train that, get better at that, and then it brings your whole system up. Not, yeah. It's not as much fun, but... You know, like blank bail shooting or blind shooting. A lot of the guys will stand there and just work on form. You know, I used to do that a lot, especially traditional. You just get a big blank bail and close your eyes and just, what's it feel like? All right, that's the system. Mm. And then that's what you do. But it's not fun. It's not nearly as much fun as watching arrows flying to the target. <laughs> I've, tr- I've tried, I- I've talked about this before, but my dad s- somehow got the- his hands on these stickers when we were kids that said, um, stay calm, pick a spot. And you put them on the inside of the limb of your bow. But then you're sort of relying on this idea that you're going to remember to read that <laughs> damn sticker. But when I'm out, I don't, I don't do this with rifle hunting at all, but if I'm out bow hunting, I spend a lot of time trying to be like, when, when, the, when a moment, when you sense a moment's going to happen, 
to start going into this thing like like you said to remind yourself of the process it's a mantra yeah but but and you could even be in a situation where you, you see something coming and you and you remember you're like you congratulate yourself for remembering be like the process process and just pick some part so you're aware that there is a process but then all of a sudden like you, you can't tell i remember hunting hunting uh seeker deer in maryland this year i had all the time in the world because i called this i called to a stag and he's starting to come and i'm like wow he's coming and i'm like okay process 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 i'm trying to remember all the things i'm going to do and then he comes through this area where it's a lot of obstructions so he passes through this little thicket and i'm like he's going to come all the way through and i'll never get a shot but then all of a sudden he stops in the weirdest little gap and instead of this whole thing that i've been telling myself about how i'm going to do this whole walk through the minute he stops I'm like ah! <laughs> right it's so like right up until the second and then even though i remembered like I, I was happy to remember process but then you get this gap and you're like, well, screw the process. Yeah. I think yeah. it's a good... I got to shoot this arrow. Yeah. It's like a good hunter who could, who, who would be like, I'm not going to have an opportunity. There's an opportunity. I'm going to stick to my plan. And if it doesn't work or he steps away, then, then too bad. And it's not like I'm now going to throw the whole thing out the window and then sh- shoot over its back, which, which is, which oh, is what I did. That's like coyote hunting for me. I've been doing a lot of coyote hunting in the winter. Man, a coyote comes running in. It's like... I forget. I mean, you forget how to shoot. It's like 100 yards standing at me, and it's like they stop, and you know they're about to rush. You're like, boom, and you miss them. You're like, I'm shooting a sitting shot with back support, and I missed a coyote straight up, an eight inch target at 100 yards. Yeah. It's like, oh, it'll humble anybody, but it's like, same thing. It's like, oh, I got this plan. He's going to come over here and pop out, and all of a sudden it's like there, he's about ready to leave, and you're like, crap, shoot that shot. <laughs> Takes off running. You're like, why did I do that? I could have taken a half a second and actually squeeze, line up, keep it steady, boom, and drop him. But, yeah. but you're like, I got to shoot now. What do you so. think is the biggest mistake? What, what's the biggest mistake that uh, hunters make when shooting? You, you can do it archery and, and or archery Ooh. and or rifle. Rushing the shot. I'd say, you know, I do it still. That's, that's the main thing, trying to, trying to push that shot. You know, you, you break your plan, like you said. Oh, I got to shoot it now. I got I to gotta do this. I got to do that. If you just take that, and it seems like forever in your mind, but if you actually watch a video of yourself shooting, you're like, I felt like I took an extra five seconds, and it was three quarters of a second. That little bit of time to just, okay, this is what I'm doing, and then just do it. See, like the, the deliberate, you know, that's, I try and tell myself that, just be deliberate, be deliberate, be deliberate. Because yeah. I know the system, I know the process, I've shot millions of rounds, same thing, it's like be deliberate, make a deliberate shot. It helps me to repeat things like that, it just helps me bring my heart rate and my breathing down a little bit to have that mantra going, I always tell myself slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Yep. And I just kind of repeat that and try to not be like, oh, pow, you know. We used to say that all the time, you can't miss fast enough. <laughs> can't miss fast enough i do that also i have a five for archery i have a five-step process right so it's feet draw anchor peep pull right that's all i do and i line my feet up and i do it all the time and uh, that's I, good yeah, yeah. I like so that you see too. a buck coming and you're like remember feet draw so you, i draw straight back and i didn't come up with this john dudley did but you draw straight back you find your anchor and then put your nose down and find your peep and then pull and you're not like you're never like shoot. It's pull. So tell me the five again. Feet. You line your feet properly. Yeah. You bring your bow up. You draw. You find your anchor. And then feet draw anchor. Anchor peep, and then pull. And if you could just remember to do that, man. Here's how I do just that. Here's how I generally do it. Feet draw anchor. Oh! <laughs> feet draw. <laughs> oh, yeah! 
this. But it, yeah, but I feel like it's if if the process marries up with your ability to act in the moment, like I read I read a little bit on flow state and thought I was real smart and then thought I would flow state my way to killing animals didn't really work. What's flow state mean? It's just like a, a state of positivity and, and action and control, like focusing on like your mental state and being positive. I thought, oh, if I meditate, <laughs> I never meditated. <laughs> but the idea that I could control mentally like this process and make sure nothing could penetrate it like one two three four five bam and just have never successfully doesn't work doesn't work doesn't for work me. for you but that's when you when you get to the back tension then you start to like control you make sure that hey man i can i can jump this but i have to be pulling the right way it doesn't matter i can try to jump it but the back tension is is controlling that, me my brother talks about lust and greed the preacher it's compelling. No, shoot, this is the, the hunting. He talks about lust and greed and hunting because he's like he can shoot targets all day long, but he doesn't lust for them. And when you put like a big game animal in front of him, like the, he he says it, it's it disappoints him that his like the lust Lusty and greed <laughs> overtake well, him. Now. If you like, can just tell he wants it, that. he's like I want it so bad that it blocks my ability to have it <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely. yeah if you could just tell yourself there'll be another shot there'll be another animal there'll be like if you just treat it like that like it's got to be perfect or i'm not going to do it if you could somehow do that life would be a lot easier maybe when i see something coming through the woods i'll be like who gives a shit just a big old buck who really even wants this stupid thing <laughs> stupid it's probably gonna taste i like, don't care it's probably gonna taste terrible i'll take a shot but i don't care yeah. <laughs> i always maybe think about that fun. pistol course that we took paid a bunch of money um do this accelerated pistol course by the end of the day five out of five of us can hit a target with a pistol at 100 yards and i will guarantee you within a year there wasn't one out of five of us that could hit a target with in 50 yards right <laughs> because like it faded like, well you lock in the process, process and you're like well got that i'll just put this on the shelf over here <laughs> That is you a know? perishable skill. That's the thing about this. Oh, really? <laughs> is a perish- oh, man. Perishable. Yeah. But so, so is my longbow. Same thing. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's because I mean, it's absolutely. process, process, yeah. process, muscle memory. Yeah. Don't shoot that thing for a week. It's like I'm a what? danger to myself. <laughs> That's the weird thing in the archery space where everybody's got to have a new bow every year, right? You got to have the newest, greatest bow. You have to. I mean, if you're going to be any, any kind of good. You're like, you're switching bows every year. I like, appreciate that. I can buy a two-year-old bow for a lot cheaper. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> But there's New something to me. About, you like that New to me. Yeah, I'm on year five of mine. Yeah, I mean, but that, that seems to be a better me- way to go. You got a bow, you know, and you know the mechanics of it. You understand what it's going to do. Why switch? Yeah, I take it pretty seriously to switch. Like rifles, I don't care. I'll bounce. Yeah, rifles a little with bit a bow. I'm nervous about. Oh, and yeah. I'm not even like a. I'm not like a great shot, right? But uh, I'm far from a great shot. But I still get nervous about switching. But then I'm like, maybe I'll be better. But it's a good thing that that industry's done. Is I think I don't know if it's slowing down now. Maybe Giannis has perspective on this, but it'd be like it seemed like for a while there were so many advances, or else they made you think there were advances, and that when you had an older bow, you were like missing out on the party. Yeah, and it's probably like a marketing creation. It's maybe. still that way. I remember there's a particular company that used to have at ATA. They would have like a dude come in on a motorcycle with the new bow, and it would be like fireworks going off, and he would drive the he would like drive a motorcycle into their booth with the new bow, and everybody would be like, and I'm like, what is this thing? 
Like, is this thing shooting 500 FPS with a smooth draw? <laughs> like, and no, it's silent. no different. It's a, and no quiet on a motorcycle. Yeah. So it's, but that they still every company still you know uh, every company worth uh, assault in in the industry still puts out a new model every year. I got yeah. a good question for you. Uh, this is getting, like mental versus mechanics, right? Oh boy. Okay. Many many times I've gone down to the range just to make sure that my hunting rifle is on. All of my rifles are hunting rifles, so I don't know why. I'd put that in there but like i start out get some some flyers and then i end up adjusting my scope and then by the end of that session at the range i've then readjusted it back to the original settings (laughs) (laughs) mechanics or mental i would say probably mostly mechanical and the reason being is that depending on your rifle and conditions like I haven't shot a rifle for six months, right? So you you haven't fired bullets for the bore. It's not hot. As you go through, it warms up. And depending on, I mean, every rifle's different. It's like I, I've gotten to shoot a lot of long-range stuff since I got out just because it's kind of a, it's a cool gig and it brings a lot of things together for me. And uh, you, you do wonder, right, because you're shooting these match rifles that are heavy barrels. They weigh 15 pounds or something, which is a light rifle now. A lot of these guys are shooting 20-plus-pound rifles in a lot of the comps. And so you get out there, and you're like, all right, I'm going to check my zero, make sure you go up there, and it's dead nuts. And over time, you start to see trends, like, well, it's colder out, or it's warmer out, or, you know, whatever. My load changed. Is it a fresh reload, or is it a, you know, one that's been sitting there for two months? Did I change ammo? It's a different lot of ammo, you know? Well, yeah. it's the same box. It's like, yeah, but that was, that's a different bar- bullet lot, different primer lot, different case lot, different prior, uh, powder lot. So it's the same box, but it's like everything's changed. That's why, like, I... Hate you know, reloading at this point. There are way too many variables, <laughs> yeah. and you can just like start like spinning yourself as far down the rabbit hole as you want to go. And I think a lot of it, you know, you get into a group. You know, how you shoot your position plays a part in that. So you shoot some rounds through it, it gets warmed up. You change your position, you get used to the recoil. You know, you're tight to start with, and then you relax into it. So that changes things a little bit. Yeah. Mm. And so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of variables. I I would say it's mostly mechanical, and that's the key. You know, people have this idea. You know, like take snipers for example like well these guys they just they're wizards and it's like well there's a lot of trends through shooting it's like where's my cold bore shot go where's my bullet go when it's this warm out where's my bullet go when i'm at this elevation so you just track that and we keep you know dope charts you know you write everything down and after time same thing with a hunting rifle even when i used to shoot you know pistol i would keep a log every day i shot i would write down what i did what i worked on what i noticed and then over time you could flip through that and you're like oh you start to see trends develop and it's not something a lot of people do, but just journaling. You know, even you go to the range. Okay, go to the range, just have a notebook and say, I shot here. My gun was shooting three inches high on the left. I'm using this box, you know, maybe mark on your box of ammo or a lot of ammo. If you reload 50, it's easier because then it's the same. Let's say I reloaded this on this date. So then you go to the range and then you say, well, it always shoots, you know, it always starts out shooting high left and then it goes down to the low right and then it goes back to the middle again. And so then you know, and if you're out hunting, like, okay, this round's probably going to go you know, two inches high and left, even though it was zeroed off the last group because that's what it always does. My journal would always be the same, man. Be like, shot some pretty sweet shots. Hit some of them. A couple flyers, ended on a good note. (laughs) Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months. Wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor recommended prescription. 
and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's daunting. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. Onyx Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground, insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside. Planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing. Taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. It's policygenius.com. <laughs> yeah, I, my first question would be, what uh, define what your flyers are when you say, I have a few flyers, and so I start messing with my scope. Man, I, my, my brain is strange because I, I have like a very, very select few things where I get like super anal retentive on. One is like building arrows and, and even like tuning my arrows to my, my bows. Um, and my my groups, I'm like, well, that doesn't look like a tight group to me. And I'll have somebody be like, well, yeah, but you're shooting an inch group. Yeah, like, how far do you yards, really shoot? You know, so 
Um, but something that just looks sloppy, you know, it's like, well, I got three within four inches, uh, 200 yards, and then I got two at 10 inches. Yeah. For an example. So your your group goes from four inches to ten inches. That you're saying? Give or take. Yeah, just just like some sloppiness. And I'm like, nope. I know I did everything right. Everything felt great. And I can't mentally wrap my head around why how one bullet could stray. The best way to deal with that is say, oh, a minute of elk, and then just walk away. (laughs) (laughs) Do the old the old Michigan trick. Put out a pie plate at 100 yards. Yep, hit it. We're good to go. Exactly, man. Shot a five inch group at 100. We're solid. Yeah, yep. Those do kill deer. It's that's something to remember too. As I shoot, you know, you're I want a gun that shoots. For shooting a match gun, it's like half inch. A lot of guys get wrapped around it and they'll do low development to the nth degree. Like I want a gun that shoots quarter MOA. It's like, well, a gun that will actually shoot true quarter MOA for like five shot groups is rare. I mean, you're getting into bench rest world. It's like I got guns that I've gone out and shot, and they'll shoot seven eights, pretty consistent. And as long as you're not shooting targets outside of that, I mean, think of how big a target you're shooting. It's like, I can shoot two MOA targets all day long. It's all about your wind calls and everything else. So I, I, I don't get too wrapped around that anymore. As long as it's a consistent load and it's, you know, keeping to that same thing. It's like, well, it's well under an inch. Half inch is great, but and for a hunting rifle, it's like a shooting an inch. Like, that's pretty solid. No, that's really, yeah, that's good. Do you so, know uh, Chuck Christopher? He's a big competitive bench rest guy out of Idaho. I don't. Um, I'd go down. He's got a facility built at his house, basically like a bunker on the hillside. Oh, I met this dude. I think he should have. I met him at Shot. At Shot Show. Yeah. yeah. Flat Tire Ranch. Um, <laughs> Fitting. And I used to go up there to try to like sight my rifles in with him. And it was just the most, it's, it's a bad experience. He's because, shooting eggs at 500 yards and stuff yeah, like that. And he is so dialed and he's so, he's got his process down and his process and like the hunting equivalency, like they just do not meet. Like, like it's not real world. Right. It's almost no. a different sport when you're talking about some of that bench rest stuff oh. and 20 pound oh, rifles. Oh, completely different sport. Yeah. It's amazing. Those guys are shooting four or five inch groups at a thousand though, consistently. Mm-hmm. Like their eggs are. You know, they'll shoot like three matches and they're shooting five inch groups, four inch groups with a little six mil or something. Holy cow. You know what's funny about when you talk about the consistency and then the consistency of the equipment is the way that there's this idea that back in Boone's era that these guys were like these expert marksmen. You know, that they'd like shoot and split lead on hatchets and stuff like that. It's like when you think about that they were hand pouring bullets, sometimes making their own gunpowder. And then having shooting rifles that were that were rifled by hand. You're like, and then people like to have this thing like this right old tick liquor, you know, could shoot the tick off a possum or can split bullets on hatchet heads at 200 <laughs> yards. It's like, it would be so nice to be able to go back in time to see Daniel Boone and his compatriots. And I remember, like, if you read of, of that, that account, there are accounts that people would complain about, um, people out in the settlements how they would just shoot all day long how lazy they were because if they weren't out hunting they would just shoot but to go back and be like what kind of groups were those guys actually throwing it would have been interesting because the, the mythology is this like real you know these like super accurate heart shot every time 
But when you think about the inconsistencies of all the equipment, it must have been some sloppy ass shooting back then. <laughs> like, there's no way they could have gotten no. good. Like, how good could you get when every shot is just something so different? I don't know. I, it, in some ways, I'd, I'd incline to agree just because of the, the quality. But then you had a lot of guys that were true craftsmen that could build. I mean, that's why who built the rifle mattered because you had guys that you said were throwing stuff together. But you look at guys that try and recreate some of that stuff, and they're using modern-day CNC machines and the whole nine yards. And, like, I'm having trouble getting to where this guy was consistently kind of making things, you know, handmade, like trying to replicate how they did this. It's pretty wild. And then if you go back and you look at the Civil War and you look at some of these some of these different rifles that these guys were shooting. I mean, you had guys that were shooting eight, 900 yards in the Civil War that were taking some of these, you know, Creedmoor rifles and stuff. And they were sniping guys at crazy distances. And, or you go to the black powder, the Buffalo rifles, and you look at what those guys shoot, you know, like they have the Quigley shoots and they shoot these black power. It's crazy what, and they're doing the same thing. Those guys are, you know, pouring, those are saboats and, you know, they're not shooting round balls, but it's, it's still, sometimes I wonder, I'm like, I wonder if they like did have this figured out, if it's, you know, like, like, the, how pir- good like the pyramids or like, yeah. I don't know how they did it, but here's the result, you know, if they were legit or if it's like, you know, it's kind of, oh yeah, he was a great shot. He could, you know, shoot the tick off a of possum. It's like, well, yeah, well, there's, like, a, there's a thing. Or shoot bat- a four inch group at 50 yards and everybody else was shooting a foot group, you know, like, I, I don't know. There's a thing called the Battle of Adobe Walls when yeah. uh, the, ba- the Battle of Adobe Walls, like, it was a bunch of buffalo hunters down on the Southern Plains. When they weren't supposed to hunt south of the Southern Railroad, but they started going down there and they got into a skirmish. I can't remember what tribes they got into a skirmish with, but there's this legend of this guy making a... It's like a 1,500-yard shot. Yeah, or I, a 1,000-plus-yard yeah. shot. And I was like, how much did he walk out and be like, Hail married it <laughs> and having to hit someone? And how much did he be like, here's what's going to happen? It seems like hyperbole was pretty prevalent in that culture oh, back yeah, then, dude. too. So, <laughs> yeah, but This shot was substantiated by multiple sources. Because yep. there was the, the the Adobe Walls thing, yeah, yeah, and, and they credited that shot with ending the battle. But I'm saying, how much like how much did he just go out and wing one out there, and he was more surprised than more surprised than the guy he hit. <laughs> and I believe those were like <laughs> right. wasn't because it was a uh, like a little uh, trade center, right? Like, yeah, like trading they, post. They had a little situation. fort, yeah. And one of the accounts that I read, like those were brand new rifles. Like somebody brought them in. To then sell, and when, because um, this was in Empire of the Summer Moon, right? So the Battle it, it of Adobe was Walls was it in Comanche? That? I know it from Dan Flores talking about it. Okay, and the way Dan Flores presents it is from the Buffalo Hunters' perspective. It was this long shot that so stunned their adversaries. Um, like the hand of God is against us. We're just yeah. going to go ahead and leave these guys alone. And from the tribal perspective. Someone had, on the way to the battle, someone had killed a skunk. And it was taboo to kill a skunk ahead of a battle or taboo to kill a skunk in general. And when like that man fell, it was affirmation that someone had violated a taboo. And, and that's their perspective on why that battle went south. Yeah. So I asked Dan Flores, I'm like, who was right? And he's like, both of them. <laughs> well, the dude got hit by a bullet. And that's the derivation of, like, getting skunked, right? I'm not sure, but I like it. But, yeah, I mean, I've heard. Could be. I've, I've, same. It all plays out the exact same way, obviously. But I've heard um, there was a, 
you know, a very reputable shaman type character who said, you know, we go do this attack. I guarantee nobody will get touched. And then at the very outbreak, obviously somebody gets touched in a, in a big way. And it was like, well, all of our good mojo is, is gone. The but shot. Yeah, could have been a skunk, could have been whatever. There know. were two battles of adobe walls. Yes. And it was a very small amount of hide hunters defending like a little encampment from hundreds of adversaries, but with highfalutin equipment. Yeah, like big 50 cal uh, buffalo rifles. And in the one account I read, they were like brand new in the box, like trade goods. Right, so then like break them out, boys. We're under attack. Yeah. Uh, what did we miss, Seth? What should, is there more? Is there like any uh, marksmanship business that I should have asked you about and never did? I want to ask about big bore pistols. Oh, How much experience do you have with them? Not a lot. I've shot. Uh, I went up to Alaska just in actually during college. I had a buddy that was a little bit younger than me that just graduated high school. So when I first started college. We went up to Alaska. So I bought a forty-four mag put some hard cast bullets like all right we're going to bear country time to get a little bit bigger pea shooter so i shot that a little bit i've shot like 460s and some of that stuff but not a lot you know I'm not. is it a lot harder or is it still just in your head the, the fact that you're dealing with this thing that just barks and makes your hand hurt so bad similar concepts you know it's it's definitely different it's like driving a a race car versus driving a you know a I don't know. Something that requires Some big CGL truck, you know, an off-road truck. Out the woods. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dump truck. I'm like, it's, it's a little different. But yeah, similar ideas, you know, breaking the trigger, keeping your keeping your sights tight and breaking the trigger. And yeah, it's similar concepts, but it, it, it takes some muscle memory to get past the blast for sure. Oh, because like what you're speaking to is like a 44 mag with a four-inch barrel. Yeah. Yeah, specific. How uncomfortable, uh, how uncomfortable it is, and then how stunningly inaccurate one is. Well, like, it, they can be accurate, but I've always thought of those. You know, it's like how light can we make a four fifty four so that it's easy to carry in bear country, right? And then you're shooting the or a five hundred, and it weighs you know two pounds versus like the four that it should weigh plus. I was like, to me, that's what we call a get off me, bro weapon. You know, yeah. it's like, <laughs> if a bear's right here, it's like, it's me to you. I just got to be able to get that thing to bark and get it out and shoot at 10 feet. I'm not, I'm not going to be go out and trying to smoke a bear with that thing at 150 yards. I might be getting this story wrong, but someone was telling me about, they had, these, they had a bunch of guides who carry revolvers, short-barreled revolvers as bear protection. And they did something where they put them at the bottom of a hill and some guy rolls a basketball down the hill. Okay. I think I, I could be messed. Do you know the story? No. You no told one, it before. Yeah. But yeah. No, one hit, no it. one hit it. And that's the thing you're supposed to hit this bear in the head with as he's coming down on you. Well, and, and to your point about protection, so that if you're shooting a hunting pistol or something, then that's different. You know, put a scope on it, or maybe that's different. And I've, I was talking to a kid whose dad used to hunt with a, with a pistol, and he was one of those guys that shot the big boar, like the 460 Rollins and all those, the wheel guns. And his dad, I guess, was one of those pistol arrow types that he just, he's put tens of thousands of rounds to this one gun. And he was telling stories. They were breaking, I mean, he'd break clay pigeons at 100 yards with this thing all the time. You know, rabbit would come running out and he'd just smoke this rabbit, you know. And there's tons of stories throughout the frontier days of pistol arrows that could just make incredible. You look at Bob Munden, how fast that guy could draw and shoot. It's like, you can't even see him. It's like, boom, boom. It's like, okay, I guess it's legit, you know. Bob Munden's the Bob Ross of pistol shooting. (laughs) Well, yeah, but, you know, like, as Bob Ross is slow, this guy's fast, so it's like, you know, polar opposites, you know. 
And uh, he's like, yeah, my dad used to go shoot. He went and shot a brown bear in Canada or Alaska, Alaska I guess. And he shot this thing at like 140 yards. It was standing up and he shot him right in the center of the chest. But he said they went out with the guide. And I mean, this kid's just telling stories, but I'm sure you know, he can back them up. And other guys like, yeah, this dude, I've never seen anybody shoot a pistol like this. But iron sights. He's like, we're going to go sight in our hunting rifle. And his guide's kind of the same way. Put up a paper plate, shoot, you know, three shots on it. Yep, they're all on the plate. We're good to go. And this guy's hunting with a pistol. He's like, are you sure you want to hunt a brown bear with a pistol, boy? You know, kind of thing. He's like, sure. So he gets up there offhand, shoots four rounds, I think, on this plate, or five rounds on it. I think it's five rounds. He goes up there, and it's like a four-inch group on this plate, 100 yards. And he's like, literally, he shot a better group offhand with this pistol than the guy did shooting off the hood. And so the guy's like, well, I guess. So there's guys out there, and I, I've known a couple that they shoot big bore stuff and they're crazy accurate. But for me, my the gun I carry is a Glock 10 mil hardcast bullets because sometimes volume's, <laughs> volume's better than one. Yeah. I, I get one off with a 500 to get that thing out. I, I can I can shuck a Glock pretty quick. So And I got 10 rounds in that thing. So if I got a bear that's just start chewing on me, I can get three or four off hopefully before I get knocked down and – so that's that's where I'm at. It's a it's a platform I'm used to. And what are you doing this fall? You want to get together and hunt? Where, where I have a tag and you don't? You, just, <laughs> you watch for bears. You got it. Perfect. Guessing it's going to be somewhere towards the that yeah. direction. Yeah, yeah. Over there. Over there. <laughs> Some, yeah, that's that's the thing, man. Bears have been. You know, there's a lot of areas I've hunted and been around, and I've never hunted. You know, you get down to like Tom Minor Basin or some of those areas. I have guys that won't hunt there anymore. They're like, oh, it's not a lot worth of guys it, man. They're like, I, I used to hunt there every year, but we it's not if you run into a bear, it's like, what's the situation going to be like? And it's every year. They're like, it's not worth it. You're walking out under a headlamp. It's like, uh, you know, it's always kind of that, oh, there's something in the night. It's like, well, there is, you know, and like, you're going to run into them at some point. Like, eh. Yeah. And outfitters that don't work in certain areas because they're so, because they, they get, they get hammered and, so bad on feed and it just is hard. And the bears are just like, what are you going to do about it, buddy? Yeah. You can't hunt me now. Nothing you can do about it now. Yeah. And you got any more you wanted to hit? Yeah, well, we had that email coming about the uh, the definition of loaded. Oh yeah, to, I think that would be. I've a been good saving this to talk Seth. about. Yeah. Well, it's a legal. It's a legal question. It is. Well, but no, because I I've, play a lawyer I've, on I've, the weekends. I've, 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 po- I've posed it to a couple different people, and uh, everybody's kind of got two answers. Yeah. Really, it's a good question. So uh, he's a the guy's a lawyer. Yeah, I think it's a gal. It's a young lady, it? right? A gal's yeah. A lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. You want me to spell it out? Yeah, I read this. I actually saved this to talk about. I just didn't get to it. Yeah. she. The, I'll try to do my best here to make it simple for when she was in the courtroom, and I think the, the, it, was, it came down to the definition of loaded because to, um, for the perpetrator to be uh, charged with aggravated assault, the gun had to be loaded. Mm-hmm. So then it came down to, well, what is loaded? Because... If it's not, then it, the punishment is not going to be as severe or the charge won't be as severe as if it is. And she says, well, the, the mag was full. And the other guy says, well, no, if it, it didn't have one in the chamber. So it wasn't loaded. So it's not, you know, like he was saying, I'll shoot you. But if he actually can't shoot because he doesn't have a loaded weapon, then that's where like the gray area was. So she's like, dude, I for sure thought that, you know, load you know in the magazine means loaded and she went home and has been you know talking to other people about it and everybody and she seems to be uh she wants to argue that it wasn't she wants to argue that her client's gun wasn't loaded because he didn't have one chambered no she's saying that it was well she wants to argue that that, yeah whoever everybody else i don't don't know where she stands on the case but she's wanting to argue that 
having it, having a loaded magazine counts for a loaded weapon. I think loaded that when gun. you're talking about pointing it at a person, <laughs> if you're out hunting and you said, is that thing loaded? No. Having some in the magazine, it is not loaded if it's not chambered. The minute I point it at you, like if I point a revolver at you and it winds up that I have an empty cylinder in there and, and, uh, and I got an empty cylinder and you say, is that loaded? And I'm like, no, but I'm pointing it at you. I feel that it's a different, it's a completely different set of rules. Well, what's the definition for like for what you came? So I was just how, and I was how, just how looking, you I was just looking it. up the. Uh, so we have different aspects, right? So you can carry, you know, you have different methods of carry. So you can carry loaded round in the chamber on save, loaded round the chamber off save, loaded no round in the chamber. So you've got different ways that you carry in the military. So like you're on a, a post and like, well, you can't carry one in the chamber, but you can carry it loaded, or you carry can't carry it with a magazine. Period. So. I don't know. I think it's going to depend on the definition. I, I don't think Montana Code has anything that deals with that. I was just looking it up. What state's this person in? She yeah, was in Idaho. Okay. I would be surprised if they have a definition of a loaded firearm. It's interesting. But there it's is, interesting thing to challenge, man. But there is some law, and I would have to look it up, that deals with concealed carry because there, there's a law that says basically you can, like, brandishing a firearm is defined. And I don't think they've ever defined whether or not, you know, what loaded means, or if you're branching a firearm, if it matters if it's loaded or not. It's there's kind of that's the only thing I've ever seen broken down. But you're saying in the military they use the term loaded for both situations, right? Loaded in the magazine or loaded in the chamber. Well, they they basically color code them so you can carry red or you can carry black, and black means this, red means this. So loaded's too broad. Right. Yeah. It's just here's the definition for yeah. Cham- here's how you chambered carry. Is, is a better. It's contextual. It is. Yeah. One in the makes chamber. sense. Yeah. Loaded too is too broad in the hunting context as well. Yeah. If a guy levels off, let's let's say go with the pump action shotgun. Okay. All right. Guy levels off on you with a pump action shotgun, and he's got tube full, none in the chamber, and then someone later wants to be like, "Well, it wasn't really loaded." Could have been re- Dude, loaded be like, real quick. I'd be like, well, "Come it, on." If man. I was a lawyer, I would say no one's ever been killed by a bullet in the magazine. Yeah, if I was so, a, yeah. if there's not a if there's not a round in the chamber, that gun's not going to kill you. Why could you just said it's loaded or chambered? Right, it's yeah. loaded if there's any. It's there's one in the magazine. It's chambered if there's one in the chamber. Right, that's that's what I would say. Yeah, I'm getting. I'm trying to jump into multiple perspectives. Yeah, trying, I'm, yeah. I'm taking the perspective of someone having it aimed at me. Yeah. who would later be like, I don't want to parse hairs here. You loaded the aimed the damn yeah. thing at yeah. me. <laughs> like, let's. I could stop it. it. I could stop it aimed. But though. I could also see the point where. In the court, like if I was get, if I was in trouble for having done that to someone else, I could imagine myself arguing very vehemently that it was in fact not loaded. Yeah, but you say the level of the threat is if there's if you have to do you know pump a shotgun rather than pull a trigger, the level of threat is is different in both yeah. both those situations. I'd be like, it wasn't loaded. It wasn't loaded. It was loaded, but it wasn't chambered. Right. That's. A- I think you'd have to lo- you'd have to lawyer that. I, I mean, wonder if lawyerese. someone's life is hanging on the definition of this word. No, not, they're not life. like they're going to get capital. No, I'd like to think that there was a that we're, we're really he was in the chamber and they're like waiting to 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 give him the drip pending yeah. on what we just de- what we decide. No, she was just curious more about the common usage in, in our in our circles. In our circle, it would be that it was not loaded. Yep. I'll say that. It would be that. If there's not a round in the chamber, it's not loaded. I always say yeah. to you, is that thing loaded? And you say, no. I'm thinking, 
It could very well back. have a magazine in it, but there's nothing chambered. Man, I, I feel like, yeah. you know, this was 20 years ago that I took hunter safety, but I feel like I learned, learned it different. I, I, th- I mean, this is in Washington. Maybe the rules are different, but I remember being told you cannot have a loaded gun in a car well, ever. And you know what? In that case, you're right. Yeah. In that case, it can't have a magazine in it. Exactly. And so I'm. So when when Yanni brought this in up the other states. day, I'm like, well, I mean, like if if you're coming back from hunting, you get pulled over. Officer asks, "Do you have a gun in the car? Yes or is it loaded? You 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 better be able to say no, and you better have the the bullets no out of rounds. Yeah, that's right. a good point. I, I we just got a letter from a woman who went. Uh, her family was all going fishing. This is an Idaho story too. Her family's all going fishing, and they go down to a park, and the dad's fishing with the kids, and she's reading her book. It's something or another happens where someone's got to leave, and they give her the rod, and so she's just holding a rod on the grass, holding a rod, and someone comes up and checks her license. She doesn't have a license. She said, I'm not fishing, but I'm like, yes, I'm at a lake holding the rod. I didn't fish, and they give her a citation. But she argues it in court and gets thrown out. Oh, really? Yeah. She's like, I didn't fish. I had a rod at a lake because whatever, her husband said, hold the rod. I think there's some places. And he came up. She, and and this is her claim, is that this individual came up the second she touched that rod. Mm -hmm. Like, gotcha. Oh, yeah. Well, that's where you go back to the... You know, one of the other things I moonlight as a reserve police officer, so I get to play with some of this on the other side. And the one thing they talk about a lot when you're looking at how to enforce laws, because, I mean, there's obviously ambiguity in a lot of areas. And as a legislator, I don't want there to be strict clarity where you're going to go through and define everything down to every level, because then you're going to have double the size of code. I would rather live in a state where people use common sense and say, hey, you know, this, this law says don't do this, so this is obviously what it means, so just don't do that. Yeah. But that's where you talk about the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. It's like, what is this law designed to do? And so as law enforcement, whether that's, you know, fish and wildlife, and, then, you know, we had some hits with that, like tagged immediately upon kill. Well, that got changed to before moving it because the guy got a ticket. And he's like, well, I haven't moved it. We're gutting it, but I didn't tag it. He's like, yeah, like I sat down and had a sandwich. What does this actually accomplish if I don't tag this thing now versus five minutes from now? It doesn't do anything. The idea is that you can't move it around and transport it because then if you get caught, you're like, oh, I was going to tag it. It's like, well, but you didn't. Yeah. So I think that's where you get to this, like you said. Is it unloaded? It's like everybody knows, like, hey, can you shoot me with this gun or is it taken apart and put in a bag? That's kind of the definition where if you're pointing it at me, it's like, well, does it have a round in the chamber? So I think a lot of that comes down to interpretation of letter of the law versus spirit of the law. Just going to have to figure it out. Speaking of letter of the law, oh, boy. <laughs> There's one last thing we wanted to hit on, and this is like a real. I can already like if people want to stop listening, they can go ahead. <laughs> they can go ahead. But can, I want Sam's uh, about to drone on about some. We're going to try to. We're gonna, yeah, yeah. There's something we wanted because uh, the reason the reason we have an obligation to talk about this is because we invited we invited it. We did from lawyers. I'm glad we did. Yeah, I, I heard from a lot of very very kind and knowledgeable people on this and it really helped my understanding it's good to know there's a bunch of lawyers out there do you hear from any assholes too no you know, no sam got glowing reviews good good i joe joe mentioned one that was that was a little like maybe distasteful i'm like i don't if, if it doesn't have anything substantive i don't really yeah. need to see it no the so, lo- but, lawyers that wrote in and i read a i read a handful of them last night lawyers that wrote in were saying Almost unanimously, that Sam did a f- 
fair job of walking through the Supreme Court case. Without people, a Juris Doctorate. Which people are probably sick of hearing about. I got a letter of correction from Ben Long, who said that he, in fact, did not tell me not to talk about it. He said, just talk <laughs> about it carefully. Um, but in this, we had a thing. So I, I'm going to try to bring people up to speed in some kind of efficient fashion, because I just want to touch on this correction, because this is the most detailed correction we've ever done. Yeah. If it's, in fact, can be counted as a correction. The Supreme Court's hearing a case. They already heard the case. They haven't decided on it. Would be, um, it has to do with if a tribe, in this case, we're talking about the Crow tribe. The, tribe, the Crow tribe has a treaty with the United States from the 1800s that allows them to hunt on their own reservation, but also on unoccupied lands outside of their reservation. And there's been a lot of ambiguity about what unoccupied lands means. Does that mean any national forest, national park, BLM land, state land? Like, what does it mean? And it's, people felt like this had been settled, but it's not settled. And that a, a, a member of the Crow tribe went out and killed some elk off of his reservation. He got in trouble with a game warden. His hunting companions pled guilty. He's saying, I'm not guilty because my treaty gives me the right to hunt on the Bighorn National Forest because it's unoccupied land. And so it goes to, um, it, it, it elevated up to where the Supreme Court is going to hear this and make some kind of decision possibly to upset current understandings of whether or not the National Forest in Wyoming could be regarded as unoccupied land. Fair? Yes. Okay. In this, we were talking about um, how this individual, when he first gets in trouble for his poaching violation, he goes in front of a court, and the court tells him, don't tell, me about your, don't tell me about your treaty rights. You're not allowed to argue that you were exercising treaty rights. And I was like, how can you prevent someone from making an art? Like, how can you prevent yeah. someone from like, making their argument? And a bunch of lawyers, not a bunch, some lawyers wrote in to say like, what it is that makes it that would be a situation where you're not allowed to give your, to, to make the case you want to make in front of a judge. Yeah, and, I th and we muddled our way through it, and I think we were pretty close. But uh, a lot of these, these people wrote in with some, some really helpful corrections just for my own understanding of this. And so how that worked was that Herrera's lawyers, prior to going to trial... This is the, the, the would-be, the convicted poacher. Yes. Or... The, yes, before he stood trial, they they sought to have all charges dropped. They said, "We have this treaty. You need to drop all charges. He didn't do anything wrong." So that is is something called a motion in limine. Um, it, but the, and, and what that means is um, it's settling issues before a trial um, by either asking the court to pre-approve the admissibility of something they plan to present evidence or an argument or asking the court to exclude something that they don't want their opponent to present. So prior to the trial, his lawyer said, hey, you can't, you can't even try us for this. He's got, a, he's got this uh, treaty to support it. But then the prosecution says, no, that has already been settled. It's already been decided in the Repsis decision that we mentioned from the late 90s. It's already been decided that the Crow Indians do not have a right to hunt on the Bighorn National Forest specifically. The Tenth Circuit ruled on that. That issue is settled. 
you cannot relitigate an issue that is settled. Gotcha. And so, so we're saying, don't bring that all up again. Yeah, we already decided that. If you got some else to say, go ahead and say it, but don't lay that on me. Yeah. So in court, then because he pled not guilty, he had to make a different argument, which he decided they decided to go with. Didn't know where he was. Didn't realize that he'd crossed into Wyoming. And they're like, well, you were a game warden at the time. You should have known you're guilty. But then after that, they appealed. And to you know the Wyoming appellate court, they um, upheld the prior decision. They appealed to the Wyoming Supreme Court. They declined it, and then they appealed to the United States Supreme Court. And you know it's it's a little amazing because I've been reading a lot about this. And the United States Supreme Court has something like seven or eight thousand cases appealed to it every year, and they select like eighty. And so it's it's a little it's a little interesting that they were able to get there. But one of, one of the things the Supreme Court is looking at... How many cases of the court? About 80. It's crazy that in the same year, because they're also hearing the case about the guy who has the pistol permit in New York. He's got a pistol permit for his home that prohibits him from taking his pistol right. out of his home. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, why do my Second Amendment rights end at my doorstep? And they're hearing that case too. This is big year for hunters for in the Supreme Court. Yeah. So so that so the Supreme Court is interested in this very thing, and so the you know kind um, they're interested in issue preclusion, um, where where it's it's a it's you know it's this judicial doctrine that they're they're not really sure if if that was the right decision to not allow him to relitigate a settled issue. And, and as we know, the problem with this is that there's another Supreme Court, the Mill Locks versus Minnesota decision that kind of shook the underpinnings of the Repsis decision. It didn't overturn it, but it, 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 uh, it undermined it. So they're, they're, looking, they're looking at this, this, this idea of wh- whether you can relitigate something if... Uh, if you will, there's been holes poked into it. Yeah. Like, like an example I was laying out is let's say you lived in some situation where they said, no one, like we've decided it's never justifiable to kill someone in self-defense. So then you kill someone in self-defense and you go up on murder trial and you're like, but dude, we need to revisit the idea of whether it's okay to kill someone in self-defense. Right. Like I'm not done talking about that. And this is kind of a little bit of what's. It is. It is. And um, so if, if we covered that, there was one more uh, email that I found was very interesting and provides a, a, you know, a good perspective on, on this case and perhaps where it will go. Another thing I learned is that uh, this, it, this decision is likely to be issued in June. Oh, okay. We were going like, oh, well, I heard it was this summer. Maybe it'd be later. But it's the Supreme Court's going to go in re- on recess after that. So they, they usually issue a lot of their, their rulings prior to going on recess. Hold that thought for a minute. Yeah, I'm kind of obsessed with the Herrera v. Wyoming case. Are you familiar with this at all? This is the one you're talking about right here. Yeah, Um, somewhat. You've heard? Okay, you've at least heard of it. So I was I was thinking about this because treaty law came up. So in um, I was on the Judiciary Committee, and we had the hearing for the CSKT Water Compact. Mm -hmm. um, My second, um, two sessions ago, I guess. And it's huge. And what they argued was that the tribe has 
That's um, Confederated Salish Kootenai. For, right, right. Everybody. So the Confederated Salish Kootenai tribe, which is uh, the Flathead, basically, area. So they had a ruling where they, they redid the water compact. So they were going through, and water's a huge issue in Montana, as you guys, I'm sure, are aware. And what they said is that the tribe had primary water rights or, or were trying to establish primary water rights even back to, you know, some of these claims are in the 1800s that people filed for their water rights. And they're saying, well, the treaty was like 18, I don't remember the year off the top of my head, but it's, it was prior, the treaty was signed prior to these water rights. So they're saying these should be a higher priority. And the language that they used in the treaty to make this claim was that the treaty granted the tribal members the right to hunt and fish in common with the population. So what they're saying is, well, you have the right to go fishing on any land that anybody else can go fishing on. Yeah. And it, you know, it gets into the nuances of well, what does that mean exactly. But the argument that they made was, if you have the right to hunt and fish on a stream over in, like, and we're talking like big timber area. So this is how far out the water rights went. They said, if you have a right to hunt and fish, then you have a right to, to mandate that there's an appropriate amount of water to protect the fisheries in those areas so that irrigators who might have a priority date that's you know in the 1800s for their water rights then can be argued that well the the treaty prohibits them from using water that could then affect the in-stream flows you know 200 miles away because they have the right to fish there and if you lower the water to where it's no longer um, beneficial to the fisheries then you're surfing Impact, that right. Impacting our right to fish. And so that was the argument that they made, and the, the treaty went through, and it was compounded with the fact that the Montana Constitution says the waters of Montana are owned by the people of Montana. And so the treaty, the way that it's written, is since the treaty or the, the water compact is actually states that the water is held in trust by the federal government. So it's not actually owned directly by the tribes, it's owned through the federal government. So then it's like, well, wait a second, our constitution says that we have, that we own our water. How can the federal government then own our water? So it was a huge issue and, you know, there's a lot of nuances, but it's kind of the same argument. It's like, well, what is the tribal, what does the treaty actually grant you? Does it grant you the right to have this? And so that's a, that's a great lead in. It's a huge, huge, yeah, it's a huge issue. And people are vehement on both sides of it. So yeah, and so this other one I wanted to talk about is is exactly that. It's like, what did the treaty mean? And 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 this guy, um, he he says he's a recent recent law graduate and uh, just took the bar last week. But he did study Indian law and wanted to explain something that he felt like we missed. And so he explains the the idea of canons of construction. They're basically rules that like underpin laws and understanding of of laws such that you know, later when they're brought up again, you can under, you know, understand where, where they're coming from. And so the, the, the canon of construction for federal Indian law comes from a Supreme Court in 1830, Supreme Court decision 1832. So this is even prior to that, that treaty being signed. But uh, there's something, there's a quote, a, uh, a concurring opinion from Justice McLean that says the language used in treaties with the Indians should never be construed to their prejudice. How the words of the treaty were understood by this unlettered people rather than their critical meaning should form the rule of construction. So ah, they, like the understanding. So it's, it's, it's what they thought it meant at the time. What the natives thought it meant at the time is what matters. Not, not what, what you, our modern understanding of that word or phrase 
means. So this gets at the, so we were just talking about one issue in the Supreme Court of issue preclusion. And this is the other issue that they're discussing is unoccupied lands. And so this guy's suggesting. This is interesting too, because we had brought up the context of the time previously, as far as where there are animals. And at that time, there were no animals on those lands. So in that context, what was understood at the time, and be like, well, that's not part of it because there's, there's no elk. There's no elk over <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting that they would have thrown that in, where they say like, you can hunt unoccupied lands as so long, long as there's any game there. Yeah, because it's like, why even add that in? Yeah, and and Wyoming argues explicitly that it was under they they think it was understood in these treaty arrangements that the game was going away, that it would soon be extirpated, and in fact, it was. And, and so they, they saw the, all these things as temporary arrangements, that, that the, the, this, was, this is a transitional phase as the natives, as the crow, transitioned to an agrarian society. So Wyoming's like, well, yeah, we saw, they, yeah this treaty was signed, but... You could hunt them until they're gone. Yeah, every, everybody, everybody assumed that the land surrounding would become occupied quickly as states were established and settlers moved in. And you can hunt all this area as long as they're still game because it's going away fast. And in fact, elk were extirpated from the Bighorn Mountains shortly after the signature of that treaty and were brought back through um, very rigorous restocking yeah. efforts. I think so, another thing to, that warrants pointing out is tribal members are obviously allowed to hunt um, the same as any other resident non-resident said laws so this is all it's not like they can't hunt it would be that they can hunt under the same guidelines that any other state resident or non-resident would come in and hunt but this has to do with like an overlay which is just specific tribal hunting rights yes specific to tribal members yes and 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 the specific like tri tribal treaty hunting it it it's it's an important distinction for people to understand because yes natives can apply and draw these tags in the bighorn mountains in the, in this area but the tribal treaty hunting the, which which occurs in many states often exists on a different plane than state managed uh you know normal hunting it's 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 often often uh seasons are often not existent bag limits are different it's it's more like it's more like alaska subsistence yeah hunting than it than it fits within our you know, neat little program of, of state-managed wildlife. So you, are you good on clearing points? I think so. We're going to put it to rest. Let's put it to rest. Then in June, you're going to come on and tell us what happened. Yeah. Sounds and if great. it's a big deal or not. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and my, my views continue to evolve. I said, I, th I think I put it as a three or four last time. We that, decided it's gonna on that it's going to change the world as we know it? Yeah. And, and I think I might be more of a solid four, even a five or six now really? after some of these conversations i've had in the last couple of weeks that this could have major ramifications for game management that's a precedent i i i i i i wouldn't say major but i i would say it could significant? have significant ramifications all right man interesting thank you got anything to add yanni i don't got the turkey calls in your pocket <laughs> yeah i'm i'm getting ready we're less than a month away Ben and I are counting down. We're counting down. You need the snowshoes. April 2nd. <laughs> Not where we're going, on the Rio Grande. <laughs> <laughs> Tejas. The Rio Grande. The Rio Grande turkey.
Okay, Seth, thanks for coming down, man. Yeah, my pleasure. You know, we're gonna have, we're gonna uh, probably have to call on you again for uh, corrections and whatnot. Yeah, I'll be around. All right, and uh, thanks to everyone. How about some closing thoughts? Oh, you want to hit a closer? I don't necessarily have one, <laughs> but can you can you present the opportunity? I feel like people have ample opportunities of closers. I know, but I want one for this video. Uh, ben, you got any concluders? That's a lot of pressure. You gonna film me or film Steve while I conclude? Yanni. Well, you, that, sure. uh, there's an important one on the Rio Grande because yeah, I forgot about that. That overlaps with our Austin, Texas live podcast dates. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. It doesn't overlap. We go from there to, to Austin for the live show. Well, it's one plane ticket, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So what's the point? That's your concluder? I think that's just something to mention. Like we're doing a big, fancy, super fun live podcast in Austin, Texas. Are those tickets for sale yet? Yep. They are. They are for sale. Uh, my concluder is, as we were talking about uh, shooting, I was thinking about all the movies I watched as a kid and all the bullshit <laughs> shots that were made that were clearly not, you know, I was thinking of Legend of the Fall, Lonesome Dove, I was thinking of Tombstone, uh, Tombstone. I was thinking of all these movies, Quigley, like, Quigley Town Thunder, all these like oh, yeah. seminal movies that shaped how I think about the West were all, there was at least a or a number of bullshit shots in each one of those. What I always hated oh. was when somebody has a revolver and they shoot like 18 times. There's a Mel hitters. Gibson movie, The Patriot, where the, yeah. the, the red coat, the officer, he has a muzzle-loaded flintlock pistol and a dude is riding a horse like 200 yards down this creek and he just pulls up and boom, and the dude falls off his horse. I'm like, yeah. Well, you ever watch uh, The Battle of the Buster Scruggs? There's some good yeah. shooting. Yeah. <laughs> but that's almost a parody of good shooting. But yeah. That's, yeah, that's a parody of like what's been done in the, world, in the realm of like Western shooting. Shooting like a western satire yeah it's like a satire but that's my concluder oh i got a concluder um we've talked over the years a lot of bit a, a lot about a documentary that i did with 0, 0.0 production and um you can watch it now go to stars in the sky film.com let me make sure i get that right stars in the sky film.com and then it, it's available for uh streaming and download on Vimeo, you can rent it, you can buy it. So check it out, full-length feature film, available now. How's that for a concluder, Yanni? Good job. You wanna turn that camera around and hit your own concluder? <laughs> Seth, thanks for coming, we appreciate it. Uh, That's my your pleasure. concluder? My pleasure. Yep, 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 yep. Month away. Well, Cal's got another one, he's raising his hand. No, he doesn't. No, no. He's just <laughs> raising his phone. Thanks everyone. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com, use code MEATEATER for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free.
Hey, it's Steve here. Are you serious about hunting or self-defense? Well, starting in 1996, XS Sights took proven dot-the-eye sight pictures from firearms used on African safaris and applied that methodology to modern defensive handguns, all made in America and trusted by industry leaders. Meat Eater listeners can get an exclusive discount on the XS Sites website. So just go to xssites.com and use code MEATEATER at checkout for 25% off. XS Sites, the fastest sites in any light.